Where's the capital, Mr. Holmes? Magnificent. Thank you very much. Not at all. What do you really want, Mr. Sherlock Holmes? Yeah, Heinrich Hinkle, or as you now call yourself, Mr. Richard Stanley, in 1914, secret agent of the German Kaiser. Since then, head of the most insidious international spy ring that ever existed. You're wrong. A case of mistaken identity. Welcome back to the Bloody Pit. Uh, this is episode number one forty-three. I had to think. Actually, I had to look at a screen to find out. Episode one forty-three of the Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett, and with me tonight are two people—the same two people who've joined me for every Sherlock Holmes film that we've covered so far. Directly to my left, Beth Morris. Beth, tell them what you sound like. Hi, I'm Beth. <laughs> That was me. Okay, she doesn't this, always this sound that way. Troy, Troy. <laughs> shut up. <laughs> she doesn't always sound that way. Troy. This is how I, this is how I really sound. Shut up, Rodney. <laughs> <laughs> that is how she sounds. <laughs> you can tell she's practiced practiced at that phrase. <laughs> and directly across from me, already amused at the the mm. domestic bliss. Mm, that's right. The dynamic is <laughs> Is Troy Gwynn? Yes. How are you doing tonight, bud? I'm doing good. Good to see you, folks, and good to not see you folks listening to us, but good to know you're listening. Good to know you're listening. <laughs> good to know you're out there and That's alive right. and That's well right. and not uh, not bothering us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, tonight, we return to the universal horrors of the 1940s uh, with our last really kind of not a horror film, 40s horror mm-hmm. from Universal. Uh, the third of the Universal Sherlock Holmes films of that particular decade. It's the last of the films that focuses primarily on uh, Sherlock Holmes as an espionage agent in uh, World War II. Mm-hmm. Now, huh? I'm going to take... Uh, oh, no. what, what? Yeah, I think you're, you're going to say the same thing I'm going to say, but we'll get to that. But yeah, that's an interesting take on... take umbrage to that. But hey... Well, what? <laughs> I, he, in this one, he's really not the espionage agent. He is basically just fulfilling a detective role. He... What's the MacGuffin of the story? What's the driver of the story, though? Are we getting to that already? Well, we're going to discuss the film. It it is definitely an espionage World War II story because that's what the the whole thing is about, finding this MacGuffin that is Mm -hmm. supposedly going to, you know, give Germany some kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, secret information that's going to make them have some advantage in the war. So, Yeah, but the um, last one we did like this, he was... An actual, honest to God, undercover spy. Oh, well, this is true. And yeah. he was in disguise and yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah. And this, he is actually always himself. He never goes in disguise. He's really not been hired by the government as. Yes, he has. He's for his detective skills. Right, exactly. They told him to go find something. What you're saying is he's going over there and hey, I'm Sherlock Holmes. I mean, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, oh, he's not hiding himself. Yeah. Yeah. There's he, no, there's he wasn't hiding himself in Sherlock Holmes and the Secret Weapon either. Mm. Except at the he very, was. At the very, he disguised himself at one point in the movie, or maybe mm, was it at two the beginning? Points? But and at, 
at the beginning, he was very disguised. He had been embedded. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm talking about uh, Voice of Terror, the first one. Oh, 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 yeah. oh. yes. Okay, yeah. right. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah, lost my mm-hmm. track. <laughs> but no, no, in this, he's very much playing a similar role to what he was doing in Voice of Terror. Yeah. Which is when he's mm-hmm. essentially an agent for the British government trying to recover a secret. That we, ne- we never have any. <laughs> I love the fact that it, it is a total MacGuffin. It's that Hitchcock mm-hmm. thing of we have no idea what it actually is because it doesn't freaking matter what it is. Exactly. And yeah, I mean, <clears throat> he is definitely a government agent. Oh yeah, yeah. He's okay. he's he definitely gets dropped uh, <laughs> dropped straight into it by a government agent showing up, hmm. sir. <laughs> so we're in desperate need of you to uh, leave this country and go to another and do our bidding. So. <laughs> Well, cool. I, I, Interesting. That was not the take I was going to bring up, but I'll, I'll, I'll let us get going on this. I'll bring mine up, but, but I, I, just, oh. I have a different take on the, this. So, yes. Interesting. I have uh, Troy, mm-hmm. for around Christmas time, gifted me with yet another Sherlock Holmes reference book. So, people, the stack <laughs> of Sherlock Holmes reference books, I don't even have them all here. I've got two on Kindle. Mm. I've got two others sitting here. I've got one that I've decided doesn't have enough information in it to, to, for this specific film for me to even bother having in my hands right now. I I am definitely over-researched, so <laughs> I'm going to be getting at a lot of points here that it, at times I think may be overkill. Forgive me now, because it's going to get thick with detail and weirdness, and you can really blame Troy, because I've now obviously <laughs> peaked and tipped over into the you've done too much reading for a film, Mr. Barnett. Yeah, when I was sending it to him as a gift, that was my thought. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure that's all he needs is one more <laughs> reference reference book for this series. But <laughs> well, at least at least at least it's a Kindle version, so I don't yeah. know. You know, it's not it's not, like, it's not adding to this stack of books here on the table. <laughs> but right. at least it's something interesting, like Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you think my reference books are not interesting? <laughs> Yuletide Horrors is not interesting. Is I didn't say it wasn't interesting. Folk horror books are not. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. Let's just drag this on. The I think it's the Canadian Mountie book that's, exactly. got, that's got her. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 is there a Canadian Mountie? Oh book? no, I'm sure you wish there was. It was. And I was about I to say, if there's a book that focuses only on Canadian Mountie stories, <laughs> I need to. I need to do a search here. Folks, we're just going to pause here for a second. <laughs> Does a Google search? Uh, I just, I often have to say, in all of this, is there anything you don't have? I guess so, because you got still. What got are you talking Amazon about? Things list? that I don't have. Yes, there's oh, billions gosh, of things oh that gosh, I don't have. Have you seen our wish list? Yeah. I was about to say. Would you? Would, oh, I'm Would you sorry. like a list, alphabetical or chronological? No, sorry, I, I. We can stop now. There's and a are all and everything is something we must have. Exactly. That's the thing. It's not it just. We it's just, a, it's just exactly. a matter of time and price. That's right. Exactly. Well, folks. That is right. Tonight's film is Sherlock Holmes in Washington from 1943. Are we in two or three? I think we're in. Holy crap! I forgot. 1943. Three. That's right. 43. The film was released on April 30th, 1943. I have lost track. We've been doing this so long. <laughs> I know. I lost track that we the, the fact that we actually made it to 1943. Yeah. Wow. Holy crap. <laughs> if you looked ahead, do you? Oh, I don't know what the next one. You know what the next I one know, is? I'm, oh, I'll I'm, tell I'm you. I'm excited. The end. I mean, it's something I'm gonna like. <laughs> it's not a Sherlock Holmes film. And yes, it's I, something I'll, I'll a lot weirder. Good, oh, a oh, weirder. Oh, it's weirder. Not one of the classic monster stuff. 
Uh, no, I wouldn't put it in that category, no. Hmm, okay. Uh-oh. Okay, now I because I don't know what it is. Oh, folks, if you've looked ahead yourself, I'll let Troy dangle there for a yeah, while. Yeah. So right now... Surprise, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Suspense till the end of this episode here. Uh, this is going to be fun. Uh, nevertheless, uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back and dive in, into a discussion of Sherlock Holmes in Washington. Hey, I'm so glad you could make it. Welcome to my little podcast here, Bill Watches Movies. I'm Bill Mize, I'm the host and creator, and I'll be helping you today. Now, we're a podcast that's a little different from the other ones out there. We start off with a rich and aromatic blend of B-movie weirdness. Then we fold in some Hollywood history and biography. And finally, at the end... We sprinkled just a bit of old-time radio ambiance for that finishing touch. Now we think that that unique combination will bring you an audio experience that you'll want to enjoy again and again. Each month, we'll serve up a story that will entertain you and bring a smile to your face. I do hope that you'll subscribe and try an episode. They're a wee bit naughty, but won't go directly to your waistline. Now, to learn even more, you can always go to our website, BillWatchesMovies.com, for show notes, blog posts, resources, and just general dorkitude. Now, I'm also on Twitter. Just search for Bill Watches Movies. I'm pretty easy to find, and I would absolutely love to hear from you. Thanks again for checking us out. Relax, enjoy the music, and then enjoy the show. I assure you, Mr. Arlen, that Dr. Watson is the very soul of discretion. Won't you sit down? Brother by Watson, please be so good as to keep tapping on the table with your knife. Tapping on the table, yes. It will break the wavelengths if by any chance there's a dictograph in the walls. Oh, really? Cigarette? No, thank you. You can stop now, Watson. Released on April 30th, 1943, Sherlock Holmes in Washington. The, uh first of this series of films to have absolutely no basis in a story by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Right. Uh, so this is the uh, the film that uh, Universal decided to uh, commit to with their contract, which was that they had to do at least, I think it's two, it, it depends on how many they produce in a year, but they had to do a certain number of films actually, even if only tangentially, based on a Conan Doyle story. And they could do an original as well, as long as they adhered to, you know, you can't mess with the characters, and mm. you can't kill the characters, and there are all these little rules that got put into place by the estate. So this is their first choice for this, and it is, of course, yet a, thir- a third wartime set story. Overall, this is the one of the Universal's sh- uh, series, and Beth, you and I talked about this when we sat down to watch it. This is the one I go back to the least, mm. because it's, uh, it's the one that I feel kind of... Uh, Strangely enough, my attitude has changed a little bit the more I more research I've done. But it's the one I've always gone back to the least because I always gravitate toward the ones that come after this, which are much more horror-related and mm-hmm. have much more creepy right. atmosphere. Uh, but then I got to admit that uh, watching this watching this this time, I can I can see very clearly why I've always shied away from rewatching this frequently mm-hmm. because it's it is very much just a spy story, and there's enough Sherlock Holmes juice in it. To kind of keep me interested for the most part, uh, 
But I think maybe by taking him out of London, maybe that's part of why it's not one of my favorites of the series. I mean, how how how, how frequently have you watched this one? Oh, this before? is the first. This was I've oh, never, wow, really? never seen okay. it before. This. Before. Oh, really? Ah, mm-hmm. ah, is that is that going to be true of any more? Any any of the others in the series? Um, I, I saw these. It's been so many years since I seen them because they used to show them late night on 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 sometimes on Saturday nights after yeah. Saturday Night Live. You know, I'd be watching Saturday Night Live and then I'd get almost to the end of the show and I'd nod off for a bit and wake up and I'd be in the middle of a Sherlock Holmes movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the thing is, they kind of blend yeah. together after that, and it's probably going to be. I may some of these. I may have to. I, I'm pretty sure I've seen the uh, the Terror by Night. One of them. Terror by Night. I'm yeah. pretty sure I've seen all of Terror by Night. Um, there's another one, too. I can't remember the name right off. But I know there's at least a couple. Scarlet Claw, House of Fear. Yeah, maybe it's the Scarlet Claw. Again, it's, some of these, it's probably not going to be till I actually watch them, you know. Okay. And I'll be like, okay, yes, I do remember this. This is the one I've seen. So, and, and, and for all practical purposes, it's been so long that they might as well be new. Because I can remember scenes and bits and story bits, but I can't tie them back to a specific title. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So, it's really kind of like I'm just, I'm, I'm considering myself a novice with these really coming into them, you know, almost new. I got to say, the way that I watched them was, mm. you know, in syndication when mm. they were playing them over and over again um, on some kind of movie channel mm-hmm. or yeah. something like that. And I don't remember this one being in much rotation. Because yeah, I certainly I, did not recognize any of this. Because, of course, I looked for them because if they were coming on, I wanted to mm-hmm. watch them. Mm-hmm. And I I know I haven't seen this one that many times. Mm-hmm. And when we started watching this, it, it was for me, it was kind of like watching it for the first time because I really did not remember much of it at all. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, it, so it was like watching a new movie, which is good. But I had something in, in my mind when we started to talk about watching this, it was like, oh, yeah, this was not one I liked. I didn't, mm-hmm. I, for some reason, I thought, I don't like this one. I don't mm-hmm. like this movie. But then we started watching it. It's like, I, I don't understand. I don't know why I thought I really didn't like it because it's not that bad. It's, mm-hmm. it's, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's pretty good. It's just, it's one that I, I enjoy less than the others. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, l- less than the ones that come after it. So. Right. So, I mean, because I actually kind of liked it after I, we watched it. So, I feel better about it now. Mm-hmm. I'm much less down on this movie than I was. I was not looking forward to revisiting this, but now I kind of am glad that we're not uh, picking and choosing because I would have definitely edited this one out of uh, this mm-hmm. series of, of right. podcasts if I'd, if I'd had my druthers just because my memories of it were, not that it was dire, but that it was one of the least interesting. Mm-hmm. But. And it may end up still being one of the least interesting, mm-hmm. just because it, it, just because it's not as, ooh, as vivid. Really, it mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. is creepy and vivid mm-hmm. as the ones that come after. But eh, mm-hmm. we'll talk about as that as we go. You said th- about this one not being based on an author. Uh, yeah, one of the stories. Right? One of the things that I'm gonna say about this one is that some of the Sherlockian. Figuring things out and yeah. showing how he figures things out. I didn't think that some of them, were, of them in this film were quite as strong as in others. I agree. So, I mean... He, may, he makes at least one leap where I'm going, wow, that's a chasm mm-hmm. you just hopped across there. That's yeah, pretty so impressive. When, you, when I read that, I read that about this movie. And when you said it, it reminded me again. I wonder if that's the reason why 
Oh. Those uh-huh. Sherlock pieces aren't as strong as some of the other because if I'm remembering right, the first one we did had some really Voice I mean, of Terror? Yeah, yeah. It 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 had some really good Sherlock moments while he where he was oh, yeah. yeah, figuring things out, you know. And he's more of a spy master in the second one. Yeah. Secret weapon. But let me ask you this let me ask you this. If this had not been Sherlock Holmes, the character of Sherlock Holmes, but just a British Secret agent or detective, yeah. do you think you would have appreciated the film or, or liked the story, like the mystery or like the story more if you weren't waiting for him to be Sherlock? You know, maybe from my perspective, and that's and it's for one reason. Uh, and this is a this is a reason I'm not the only one that feels this way, but I have to admit mm. that it was hard for me to ignore this. Uh, Sherlock is a dick to Watson in this film all the mm. time. Mm. I mean, like. Don't get me wrong. Hmm. It's not every sentence that he speaks. It's not every sentence that he speaks to Watson that is some kind of veiled or not so veiled put down. But sometimes he's just snapping at him. But it, it gets to the point in the movie where I'm just like, dude, why don't you fucking chill? Do you not travel well? Did crossing the Atlantic crank up your dickitude? And then I realized, no, no, he was actually being a dick to him. Back in Baker Street, mm. so I'm like, there's a lot of Sherlock Holmes being a dick to Watson in this, and it's really yeah. weird. My question is, did he make him tap on the table for absolutely no reason at all? Uh, yeah, what, what, to, yeah, what to mess with fuck him? Was that? It seemed like he was just messing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think, but it was like messing with him for for what purpose? Is my question. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's there's a, there are a number of those, and I'll probably put a, a sound bites from a few of them. I'll drop them into the show because it's just one of those things where you're just like, if I were to do a supercut of all of the Holmes insults Watson moments, it'd be about. <laughs> two solid minutes and it's like holy shit what is going on here this movie's only 72 minutes long why is so much of it taken up with one of the smartest men in fictional world destroying his best friend I don't get it I didn't have that thought when I was watching I didn't I didn't have but now y'all have heard a lot more interplay between these two actors than I have because y'all have also listened to these tons of the radio shows uh, so to me I'd, I'd never once during that had that thought in fact a lot of I thought that actually Watson was a lot less annoying than he can be. I didn't think any of Watson's bits were or, or comic bits. I thought they were a little more underplayed here, and that there was actually some genuinely funny lines that he had. I mean, once you realize his character is going to be that, mm-hmm. like you know, I just love the way he's looking at the paper. He's like, "Oh, it's Flash Gordon. Seems like a rather capable fellow." I mean, that made me laugh. <laughs> yeah, I thought like that was that. a funny oh, yeah. line, you know. For well, you know, just, you know I'll it, grant you, yes, and, but and the little things like just enjoying the milkshakes, you know, like mm-hmm. he's getting enjoying the American yeah, milkshake. Yeah, but, 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 but he, but he, but the, but the. The the sound he's like making the sound when he's when he's mm. slurping up the milkshake it's like okay wait, wait. <laughs> doing it once would have been okay but the fact that it continues throughout the scene I honestly that's the only time in the movie where I would have been okay with Holmes walking over and slapping him just going, well, Shush. and you're still gonna get the you're still gonna get the Holmes you know I mean Watson never really I mean Holmes like don't you see Watson and Watson's like yeah, well, well, you know I also don't of course he, he's always gonna be like that I mean yeah. he's, that's just the way he's Watson the is portrayed here but you know. You know, you gotta give uh, Watson a little break there. He came became the super American tourist. Mm-hmm. He was reading on how to speak, mm-hmm. and, and, and a little bit and, of that goes a long way. And as soon as he got here, he was you know chewing, chewing gum. gum. 
And, 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 and hey, he gets to be a badass at the end of the film. He, he mm-hmm. gets to do a little gunplay there. Yeah, all, which yeah, is, yeah. You know, I was actually appreciated. Yeah, that whole ending sequence. Yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, well, here's the Watson we've seen in the past two movies where he's <laughs> right. like going to pull a gun and pull yeah. some shit. Okay, yeah. okay, all right, all right, we're back to the Watson that we've seen in the past two films. Yeah. But. Yeah, I, it, uh, I, he is entertaining. Yeah, I think his comic bits are, are pretty good in this. Mm-hmm. At, at moments, I was like, Wow, he's a really gone a little too <laughs> native there, but yeah. You know, well, uh, it was so funny. I completely forget. This is just something that uh, it never. It, 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 it was funny to have this rewrite, but the moment when Holmes is like disgusted by the fact that he's chewing gum, mm-hmm. I'd forgotten that for decades, chewing gum was seen as this you know this revolting thing that mm-hmm. the young people do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it, I'm, I'm reminded of this specific moment in a Spider-Man comic book. Where Peter Parker's yeah. had to really quickly, like you, you, you know, Spider-Man his his term paper into a stack of papers for one of his professors, uh-huh. and he used his webbing to get it down there. And the professor picks it up and goes, "Oh, Parker must be a gum chewer. How revolting!" <laughs> and it's like that stuck with me forever because that like completely, completely, perfectly encapsulates the whole attitude of old people toward gum chewing. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it's like weird to see it in a yeah. 1940s film. Like, right. oh my god, that's yeah, that's still that's that, that lasted forever, didn't it? <laughs> I'm gonna go back to you talking about um, Holmes abusing Watson. Yeah, a little bit. What was with him making him sit in every chair for no reason when he was recreating the scene? Oh, when he was recreating the scene? Yeah. I I understand. I could kind of see that. Oh, he had four people there. He could have had every body. He could have had each person. I think the scene will tell you that. The, the, The other people were actually there. And so he's trying to help them visualize by putting someone in there. And saying, okay, this is where this person sat, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, and, and he gets what he wants, which is he says, okay, so if what I've heard, what I'm reading here is pro- as accurate, where he's sitting now is where this person's at, and that's when the uh, the great character actor Charlie Muse is able to step forward and go, no, that's not where that person only was sitting. Charlie, only that guy was there. That he, the other people, not one were, of the other guys was, wasn't he? Mm-mm. There are three. There's four people that come in with him besides Watson, and two of them are cops, I believe. One of them is a part of the the. Uh, oh, you may be right. The part of the trains company, but I don't think he was. He, I think he's a higher up with the train company, and I think the only person that was there that was actually in the car at the time was the. Uh, what, what was his title? Oh, he was a porter. Porter, the porter. Yeah, I think George. he was. Yeah, yeah George, George the porter was the only one that was actually in the car. And his name is Clarence Muse, by yes. the way. I, 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 I yes. misspoke there. He's a character actor who uh, has been in a blue bajillion movies. And as soon as I see him in one of these movies from this period, I was like, ah, well, at least we got one competent guy here mm-hmm. who can center this movie. Because honestly, I'm used to seeing him in crappier movies than this. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's let's be clear. He's been in good movies, but where I primarily know him from are some, uh, shall we say, lower budget movies uh he, he did a lot of really impressive stuff in his career but at the same time uh, he, was like, he was in white zombie mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. uh with, with lugosi not you know not exactly a role you know bred to prove out that somebody's a really good actor mm-hmm. and you know a lot of a lot of things like that <laughs> but uh he's he's one of those guys who he's really good in this role I mean, and he's. I mean, yeah. he's, he's a bright. He's a bright point in the movie. That's un, an unexpected bright point. Yeah. I wanted. To, yeah, I wanted to go. Ahead, I mean, I was going to talk about him at some point. So we might as well hear now. Yeah. His his character and the way his character is written was one of the nicest surprises to me in this film. 
it's pretty respectful. Because it really yeah. is. I mean, to, to be in a 40s film, you mm-hmm. know, not going to say it's breaking civil rights ground, you know, here or whatever, but compared to what you come to expect mm-hmm. from that type of role, yeah, yeah, it's actually... He's 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 not. He's, it's definitely not a step and fetch it, you know. I mean, no, bro, not, I mean, not, he's, not he's 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 smart, and you know, yeah, he's ingratiating because he's a porter. That's his job. I mean, he's a right. nice, he's friendly, polite guy, but he's very smart. He and, and and Holmes immediately recognizes that as being smart, and just the whole way the character is not talked down to exactly. or portrayed demeaning at any point. It's like for a forties film, and that's pretty refreshing. Yeah, so I, I was like, I don't. I was, that just really stood out to me. It's like, man, I really. Well, like the funny thing characters. is, he played a Pullman porter, a train porter. 17 times in movies. I believe it. <laughs> Someone counted it 17, 17. times. I can this, it. Was, there's, this is one of 17 times he played a pulling porter. Wow. Yeah, well. But I what mean, you, yeah. back to what you even the, what we end up knowing are the bad guys, mm-hmm. when he comes and brings them drinks, they're mm-hmm. not even. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they're not denigrating him. They have I mean, no interest. He's just, he's just, I mean, he's just the man. I mean, hell, Henry Danielle even tips him. I, mean, mm-hmm. I don't think Henry Danielle ever tipped anyone in his entire <laughs> life. And, uh, he said he actually... <laughs> you could be right. That was my first. Right. That was my first thought. The very first. That's what I thought I had. The very first scene of the film is like, well, is that not, what is that Arctic breeze that just blew through the? Oh, it's Henry. Oh, it's Henry Daniel. Daniel. It's, yeah, it's being. Well, it's frigid, here's the, here's the thing about Clarence, Clarence Mews. Uh, he, he he honestly could be described as a Renaissance man. I'll just quote here. He had been he'd been making movies for 22 years by the time he shows up in Sherlock Holmes in Washington. Truly a Renaissance man. He was a lawyer, an actor, yeah. a screenwriter, a director, an opera singer, and composer. He nice. co-wrote the song When It's Sleepy Time Down South. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was born in Baltimore, Maryland in 1889. And he was the second African-American actor after Paul Robeson in, in, in The Emperor Jones to star in a film. Uh, that would be uh, Broken Earth in 1936. In 1939, he collaborated with acclaimed author Langston Hughes wow. on an original screenplay uh, called Way Down South. And yeah, that mm, came that, out in 1939. Yeah, right. He, uh, he was a talented singer, sang in a number of films, including Porgy and Bess in 59. Wow. Uh, and he sang Here, Can't, Here, Come to Money, the, Here Come to Honey Man, which I still remember. Uh, but I'd forgotten that was him. Yeah. Wow. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, he died in 1979, one day before his 90th birthday, and four days before the release of his last film, The Black Stallion. Oh, wow. <laughs> he was still working. Still working with The Black... Wow, man. Yeah. Dang. That's great. That's but awesome. he was in a couple of Bela Lugosi films, White Zombie and I think The Invisible Ghost. Mm-hmm, okay. And uh, like I say, as soon as I see Clarence Muse, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, okay, well, we got one solid actor here. I don't know how much, I don't know if he's going to get any lines or not, <laughs> yeah. but there's, there's somebody I know I can trust. I've seen this guy be good before. So, Of course, the, the big news here is that you've got two, two villainous actors in this movie. And I gotta say, Henry Danielle's the one that ain't got shit to do. Yeah, he ends up kind of being more just a stooge, yeah. you know. Uh, he's yeah, a, he fooled me again, though, because he's the first guy you see, kind of at the beginning, and you're like, I, yeah, because he's he, I, they confuse me because so many of them have played Moriarty. And so I, but the first time we saw him, he was part of the British government right, there. Exactly. So yeah. So I was like, is he gonna be? Are they using Moriarty this time? <laughs> it's like the last time we saw him in the Sherlock Holmes films, he was a red herring. Yeah. He was well, actually a good guy. Well, and the other thing we're geared now to, you see George Zucco's name in the credits. You're like, yeah. oh, he's gonna be Moriarty in this film. You know, you just see that and you think, okay, yeah, no, they brought back I George Zucco to be. Why? Yeah, because I, remember, this is uh, George Zucco played. 
Professor Moriarty in The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, yeah. which which was one of which the two films that, yeah. Yeah, that Fox made in the late 30s. So. Mm-hmm. Well, one of my favorite films is the one where Henry Danielle does play. Does play Moriarty. Yeah, and so I think yeah. I've got him stuck in my head mm-hmm. for that character. So, I mean, you know, a lot of people, other people might think Sucko, but I or think... Or think Lionel Atwood you know, or something. It yeah, depends exactly. on what you... Yeah, uh-huh. what so with, many but, people have played that role. Yeah, it's yes, a DC role. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of the, one of the great, one of the great, <laughs> the great villains. villains. Yeah, right. Appeared in one damn story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Forever and a day. Every, <laughs> so true. So freaking true. Well, uh I have a lot to say about George Zuko, but we'll hold off on that because I want to get a few things out here. Uh, <laughs> remember, pe- people, these were still B movies. This picture was budgeted for 15 shooting days with a budget of $150,000. Uh, Roy William Neal, the director, managed to bring the film in under budget. He didn't even spend <laughs> the 150000 bucks to make this movie. One of the interesting things that I found out that I, that I found out from the new book that I that I have on my mm-hmm. stack here is that uh, on July twenty fourth, nineteen forty two, Dr. Uh, Howard Dennis wrote a letter addressed to whom it may concern, stating that he had repeatedly warned Mr. Nigel Bruce that he should not use his leg more than eight hours daily because remember he he had a wound in yeah, his leg from right. World War One. Right. Uh, the reason for this is that the doctor had fear of causing a return of the severe acute reaction that would keep him in a wheelchair. I mean, he had to go through a lot of time after his injury before he, he could walk before he could walk well. Uh, Bruce's war wound had been serious enough that he'd been confined to a wheelchair for a, for a period of time, and in 1945, he ended up needing further operation to uh, remove varicose veins from both of his legs. Uh, Behind-the-scenes photographs of Bruce show that he always used a canvas and wood lawn chair rather than the standard director's chair so that he could, when not, when, when not in front of the cameras, he could keep his legs elevated to, to help himself hmm. out. Hmm. Uh, Wow. That's something. That's something I had not known. It's one of those little pieces of information about how, like, uh, uh, it was Basil Rathbone who specifically requested Nigel Bruce be his Watson in the in the radio series in the '30s when they started doing that, and he basically had told Nigel Bruce, "Is like I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't do this show without you as my Watson. That's just the way it's going to be." And uh, there's just these little bits and pieces of information about behind the scenes stuff like that's kind of fascinating. Yeah, you're right. As soon as you see George Zuko's name, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, uh, well, until we have something definite, I'm going to assume he's the villain. Yeah. Uh, it's George right. Zuko. It's I mean, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, don't get me wrong. You threw, you, you threw Henry Danielle in my face. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, was, yeah. That's, a, that's usually a good indicator that uh, he's going to be pulling a knife and shiving people pretty quickly here. But, yeah, it's, it's George Zuko. Uh, Zuko's career was astonishing. Of course, I... Well, I mean, it's all the horror movies that oh, sure, yeah. that I'm always in awe of him for. I mean, there came a point in his career where he was, as well as actors, he was able to bounce back and forth between mm-hmm. A-list pictures. I mean, we're talking yeah. like big name pictures and, you know, ridiculous stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh-huh. he came from the oh, stage. Yeah. He did a lot of stage work. Uh, he was he was really well regarded uh, for his stage work. He's another member of the cast with an injury from World War oh, One. that's right. Sure did. Yeah. It's a, it, remember his, his hand, his, yeah. his hand uh, which he, they, people assumed he was going to lose when he was injured, but he, he had the, those two fingers that just don't work on his, mm-hmm. on his right hand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you pay enough attention, it's not real hard to spot, but at the same mm-hmm. time, he, yeah. he he's very effective at it. I do think in this film, there is so much uh, futzing about with the uh, the match the match 
uh, folder that it's pretty easy that with him lighting his oh, pipe yeah, you, constantly, yeah, it's hint. like, if you don't make notice of the fact those two fingers don't work. <laughs> but his he, him being able to bounce back and forth between things like Hunchback of the Notre Dame and The Black Swan and Captain from Castile, while at the same time making films like The Mad Monster, Dead Men Walk, Voodoo Man. For God's sake, man, Voodoo <laughs> Man. Yeah, yeah. He made some uh, programmers, as they called it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, he was in three of the, the Universal Mummy movies yeah. of the 40s. Mm-hmm. Looking progressively, you know, old and, old <laughs> old and weird and, yeah, with, with right. kind of semi-serious makeup on him at times mm-hmm. in those things. He was also on The Mad Ghoul and House of Frankenstein. But then again, he was also, like, in 1948, he was in The Pirate with Judy Garland. Yeah. <laughs> Gene Kelly. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the kind of thing where we're like, this guy was in every type of film that you could think of. Yeah. And part of that is because he was a really good actor. Mm-hmm. He worked so many years on the stage that I think to a large degree, casting directors like, if you can get him in the film, get him in the film. He, you can count on him and he's solid. Yeah. And he, no, they, I love the scene between him and, and Rathbone. I think they're just great. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. And, and that is just great scenes. And just that, that mm-hmm. whole final confrontation. They're just both awesome in that. Yeah. That's pretty well, good. I'll be honest. They're, okay. Think back to the scenes with Lionel Atwell and Basil Rathbone mm-hmm. in the previous film. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And then the scenes between Zuko and Rathbone in this. Mm-hmm. And it's very clear that the screenwriter who's concocting all this without having to rely on any other story to kind of right. hitch it to is thinking, that was one of the best parts of that last movie. I need to find a way to yeah. duplicate that mm-hmm. back and forth yep. between the good guy and the bad guy. And I think he does a superb job. And I, I don't want to... <laughs> It's a coin toss. Who do I love more, Lionel Atwell or George Zuko? And yeah. it's like I don't make me choose, man. I know, it's I know, like I don't want to. I don't want to have to cut the baby in half here. This is ridiculous. What are you doing to me? But both of them are excellent. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are. Yeah. Jeez. I, yeah. I really. I really don't want to choose in that respect. But it's one of those things your brain immediately goes to if you're an idiot like me, where you're going, ah, uh, which one's better? Is this a fever? Oh my god. Uh, so. Uh, I think that, it, like, like I say, the only downfall for us as horror fans is, oh, George Zuko, he's the villain. Yeah. <laughs> right, but they yeah. keep him off screen yes, for a yeah. long oh, time. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. You don't, yeah. They don't really introduce him until you already know you're being introduced to the villain. So it's not like they put him on there early in the film mm-hmm. and, and leave you to guess when you're, you know, like that, or think that he might be a good guy or might, you know, and have them talk about who's our mysterious villain and here's George I, Zuko. Yeah. I think we see his hand yeah. on screen. Yeah. When Before we oh, see right, him, because, yeah, he's, he's, because he's, he's opening old. the cabinet to talk yeah. to, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to uh, Easter down yeah. in the basement. Yeah, the, the Henry yeah. Daniel character. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, by the way, uh, I was going to save this for when we get to it in the synopsis, but do you think it was just a little bit of a joke for the production unit to have George Zuko's secret doorway hidden by an Egyptian sarcophagus. Uh, that was a nice, <laughs> yeah, that was a pretty good touch there. It's like, like that, yeah. that, is that an accident or is that just something that they were like, oh, look what we're going to do. Look just saying. It's meta and back in the 40s they were even doing it. You know, yeah, some, yeah. I, mean, uh, that's weekend, what, I hope it was intentional. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Okay, yeah, knowing that, you know, Sherlock in this case didn't know all that, but still... Don't you always think there's a hidden door behind? Behind the behind the sarc- <laughs> behind the mummy sarcophagus, yeah. <laughs> and so he turns his back, and that's what gets him in trouble because he turns his back. Well, this is also the film though where Sherlock, yeah, and, Sherlock true. and some federal, you know, Sherlock and the federal agents who are there to assign to help him just have this mysterious 
trunk delivered to Sherlock's room and they just sort of are just open it, you know, mm-hmm. without, you know, that's, that's also, I'm sitting there thinking like, I, wouldn't you like check that thing out before you, <laughs> mysterious trunk delivered to my room. We don't know who it's from. Let's, let's open it and see what's in it. You know, oh, of like, course. Holy yeah, shit. It would never yeah, be yeah, Well, yeah, I'm sitting there thinking like, you know, yeah, so I'm thinking, I'm going to make sure, call on the bomb squad first before I'd open that thing. <laughs> oh, well, let's talk about the actor who plays the corpse. <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah. Oh uh, my God. He was so... Mm-hmm. He was also very, very British or yeah. Irish or Scottish. Yeah. I mean, he he would well, have been. And he's, and he's being excessively dithering to hide his yeah. character yeah. even more, you know, yeah. at the first. So he comes off as very eccentric British uh, mm. in the first part of the film. Exactly. The, the actor's name is G- uh, Gerald Hammer. Mm-hmm. He plays uh, John, Grace, John Grayson slash Alfred Pettibone. Mm-hmm. Uh He's the uh, the man who's the actual courier of the microfilm. He's the one that ends up dead in a trunk, mm-hmm. uh, which is a waste because he was really good. He's, he's really great. He's really good. <laughs> well, don't don't worry. We get to see him again in the Scarlet Claws. So <laughs> down the road, he re, he he returns. Uh, at least that not in the same character, obviously. But uh, he's he's really good at this. And I think what's wild is that his performance improves on a second viewing because. Uh, you become you become aware that you need to be watching him earlier, and then start paying attention to. He's not doing the the over. He's not doing it in a comical fashion. That whole you know, right, cutting yeah. his eyes to left and right and keeping an eye on multiple mm. people in a in a in a room crowded with sus with, with possible mm. suspect but people. It is already obvious on the plane that he's keeping an eye on a certain person. Right, mm. and you know so. the. The the, the the dithering that we see him as he you know as he enters the picture is not definitely not something that we believe in as an audience for very long because he very easily gets across the the, the, the impression that he's got something to hide that he's got something going on here. Now here's a weird thing about Gerald Hammer. Uh, one of the things that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was famous for outside of being a writer was that he. Uh, was a debunker of spiritualists and you know mm. table rappers and all mm. that kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, Hammer did this kind of stuff too. As a matter of fact, on December nineteenth, nineteen twenty four, a short article, Dateline New York, appeared in the Newcastle News in Westchester County. It told of the purchase of a house uh, in New York City where a Joseph Brown Elwell had been murdered five years earlier. The crime had never been solved, and the house had since become a high class lodging house and appeared to be haunted by Elwell's ghost. In March of 25, an illustrated article appeared in the Sunday supplements of newspapers across the country. It declared that the property had been purchased by a Captain B. Davney, a retired sea captain of the British Maritime Service, and his partner, the actor Gerald Hammer, who was currently appearing on Broadway in a revival of Shaw's Candida. The article went on to say, quote, There are persistent rumors that these purchasers, both Englishmen, are representing Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and, uh, and other distinguished English spiritualists and that the latter will fill the house as soon as the leases now running have expired with trained investigators who will bend their every intelligence to getting into communication with the ghost of Elwell, unquote. Hmm. Of course, nothing more seems to have been written about this mystery, and it does seem interesting that the first article appeared one week after Candida had opened, <laughs> and the second article appeared just a month before it closed. Could it be that the press agent in New York was just as creative as the ones in Hollywood? <laughs> <laughs> Funny though. That's great. So in other words, are we just trying to like 
tie-in sort of the Conan Doyle's name the idea of you know like debunking spiritualists or trying to hunt down ghosts in a haunted house just to gin up some kind of oh by the way hey I want to go down to the theater and see this film uh yeah yeah, but I, I thought that was amusing. <laughs> That's pretty like, good. Well, it's like it's like the only Arthur Conan Doyle connection outside of the characters that I could find, <laughs> that I could find. But Doyle never really was a debunker. He was kind of a oh, he debunked a few. He did because yeah. he was mostly a believer. I thought. Yeah, yeah, and he, that's why he hate. That's why he was very, he very much detested the ones mm-hmm. who he could mm-hmm. see through immediately. Mm-hmm. Like the, I know Houdini was a big Houdini did nothing but rabbit. <laughs> he hated that shit. <laughs> yeah, I was reading something the other day about yeah, Conan Doyle was totally snowed as a lot of people were about yeah. the Coddington fairies. You know that he mm-hmm. really he was all about that. Like they yeah. thought they were real. The photos of the mm-hmm. yeah, Larry's yeah, fairies, yeah. So. strange. I want. I know. I don't want to believe, but I like <laughs> fiction, so I don't care. <laughs> You're a party pooper. He is. I do. I do poop. I do poop on many parties, <laughs> or at least you know near them. <laughs> Nevertheless. <laughs> well, Mr. Adams, I take it you've called on me in connection with the kidnapping of John Grayson in America last night. Oh yes. Uh, yes, exactly. Grayson was carrying a document of a very confidential nature. Indeed. Its contents are of such great international importance that I am not at liberty to reveal them. But if that document falls into the hands of the enemy, I can only say it will be absolutely disastrous for this government and our allies. For that reason, we did not wish to transport it to Washington in the usual way. So, a regular king's messenger, Sir Henry Marchmont, was dispatched. Not carrying the document, of course. That's right. Sir Henry was a sort of... Uh, sort of red herring, shall we say? Precisely. Mm-hmm. The document was actually entrusted to a reliable but insignificant man in our secret service. On his arrival in Washington, he was to make himself known to Sir Henry and deliver the document. Now, not even Sir Henry knew that this man, Pettibone, who travelled under the name of John Grayson, was the real messenger. Pettibone? Yes. Alfred Pettibone? Yes. Good man. None better. I've worked with him often. I hope you may be able to work with him again. But he's completely disappeared. He's vanished, gone, without leaving a trace. I can see the possibility of serious ramifications in his disappearance. Exactly. So far, we've been able to keep the knowledge of our loss from both the American and British public. Holmes, you must retrieve that document before it can be used against us. As promised, an actual synopsis, I swear. This uh, is the one I'm going to take from uh, the... Uh, Sherlock Holmes and the missing synopsis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, how far are we into this episode? Anyway, uh, from the uh, 40s Universal Monsters, a critical commentary book. Uh, this this chapter on this particular film was written by, I believe, Dario Lavia. Uh, we'll go like this. A number of passengers show up at the steps of a twin-engine aircraft preparing for takeoff and they identify themselves to the officer on duty. The first is William Easter, played by Henry Danielle, who, of course, automatically activates our innate suspicion and distrust because he's Henry Danielle. The second, followed closely by a swarm of anxious reporters, is Sir Henry Marchmont, evidently on a diplomatic mission and said to be carrying with him a certain secret document that would be vital for the United States. The third is Alfred Pettibone, uh, actually, uh, he, he goes by the name uh, John Grayson, but his real mm-hmm. name is Alfred Pettibone. Mm-hmm. A, a diminutive and awkward employee of a London law firm uh, from whose furtive gaze we intuit that he is either a spy or an agent in the service of the Allies. Mm. The travelers land in Lisbon in order to change planes and make for New York. 
Uh, interestingly, this transfer of passengers to an airline flying out of a neutral country followed the, the then-established policy, especially on the Atlantic, uh, because uh, basically it was still infested with the German submarines and, mm-hmm. and uh, battleships. So you wanted to be leaving from a country that was not currently at war with mm-hmm. Germany. Mm-hmm. The three suspects, now in New York, board, uh, board a train bound for Washington. From his unwavering gaze, it's now apparent that William Easter is plotting to snatch the documents from the diplomat. But upon conversing with his henchman, he deduces that Sir Henry is merely a decoy and that the timid lawyer is therefore the real messenger. Smart bastard. (laughs) (laughs) Director Roy William Neal heightens this club car sequence, uh, which he describes as a requisite in good mystery movies. Uh, I don't know if it's a requisite, but it's always fun to have them. (laughs) Uh, he, uh, there, there are a number of characters conversing amongst themselves. Some sequestered, uh, some sequestered mice. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Pretty girls smoking. Lots of drinking. Uh, and uh, remember, all these details will be key in one or two reels of the film. Predictably, mm-hmm. everything goes black. Easter and his hitmen kidnap Grayson, and it's with his disappearance that the intelligence service in London is put on alert and turns to Holmes, whom we surprise eating breakfast in his traditional 21B Baker Street living room. Once entrusted with the mission to locate the missing document, Holmes and Watson decide to start off, but not before deducing that the document has not been transported in its original form, but rather has been photographed and reduced to microfilm. Now, that segment, uh, that section of the film is yet another example of them pulling Sherlock Holmes into the modern day yeah, right, and, you, right. and, and having him demonstrate uh, facility mm-hmm. with current technology mm-hmm. uh, and then explaining it to us right, yeah. and of course, you know, through the proxy of explaining it to Watson, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, is you know, good script writing, good idea, mm-hmm. and it, it allows us to have the MacGuffin be small enough yeah. that it can be almost anywhere. But of course, immediately Holmes knows that it's got to be in, in a match folder because there's too much evidence left behind in Pettibone's house. Mm-hmm. And there's the picture of the matchbox cover that's been mm-hmm. trunk down. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, the match down. folder, yeah, the match book, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what we've got here is... The never-ending match book. Oh, yeah. They're really good at moving that thing around throughout the film. Yeah. Oh, yes. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. I mean, how many matches were... I, am I the only one that counted them? Did you? Oh, did you? Because I, I, I love the fact that at the end of the movie, we're down to the last one, and Holmes uses it to mm-hmm. kind of just stab... Yeah. To kind of stab uh, Zuko's <laughs> character really hard with it. Yeah. Well, not that I... I I mean, as far as I can tell, believe it or not, they didn't cheat. Um, really? Because I believe there's are, 20. I believe there's 20. See, that's what I always thought is those things 20. used to hold 20. 10, now, 10, I don't know about 10, British matchbooks. Two match, rolls of 10. Uh, you have right? to ask Adrian about British matchbooks. But <laughs> in, but the, in the 1940s? To, in the 1940s. The, uh, Adrian probably know, actually. But this is supposed to be an American <laughs> matchbook. Uh, I thought it came over from England. I thought it was... Uh, no, he made, he, he made the... He oh, he got an American one. That's right. So that it wouldn't right. be common, common. And once he got yeah, to the he didn't want it to be noticed. So I think they had 20 and they... And yes, I obsessively counted the matches the second time. Through and it's a 15, 15. Good job. So they actually had five to spare. It was not a well, case that means of like that, a, that just, that just yeah. means that we didn't see five that got used, right, which sure. makes perfect sense. Because yeah. I mean, I was like, that's a lot. Oh, I did too. I thought for sure it was going to be over the by the time I when I went to recount them, I was surprised. Mm-hmm. But there was not like the six the six gun that shoots twelve bullets. It was not. Like well, that, what, so. what would have shocked me is if they, you know, at some point like Zuko uses up the last of them and then tosses it in the trash mm-hmm. and then it's like then it's a frantic search for the freaking mm-hmm. thing in the trash can or oh, something yeah. like that but you know that could have been you know that that could be a way to write it as well but 
I love I, I do love Holmes just being a complete dick to the villain. No, yeah. <laughs> With that last it's like I don't yeah. like him being a dick to Watson, but being yeah, a dick to the villain, villain that's yeah, pretty yeah. thrilled with that. I mean, I'm a big fan. Um, uh, this scene just uh, I want to say something about this the scene where they examine Pettibone's room there you know yeah. and they, I, I do love the microfilm angle to it there um, and uh, I like the just the details of Pettibone's life as they're going around and kind of seeing I mean you know it's kind of poignant in a way you know this guy's yeah. like going to end up dead but they're kind of seeing the, the life he had and his interest well, in Watson already dead. considers him dead right yeah. which is yeah. which I, I think they hit they, they hit that you know yeah. him him realizing he's speaking out of turn to the guy's oh, mother right. Yeah, yeah. I, I wish they hadn't hit that twice. I wish yeah. they'd done it. They'd yeah. done it once, and once he, was an out. Yeah. And then the second time, instead of him, you know, almost saying <clears throat> something really stupid, mm-hmm. he, he's Nigel Bruce is a good enough actor that I wish that they just had him like get this, get a look on his face. There'd be a pause where the attention goes to him, and he just gets this look on his face, kind of a downcast look into his face because he's keeping himself from saying anything. I think that would have been a better way to play the second time. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I don't know. And this scene also has one of my favorite lines in the film, and I would have to think it got a laugh out of the long-term, you long-term Sherlock Holmes fans, where uh, he's, where Watson's talking about all the interest and in, in things that 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 Bettebone had, and and uh, and Holmes uh, has that great line about where he's saying like, uh, you know, the annoyance about, you know, someday I'm going to write, what does he say? Someday I'm going to write Wait, something I'm, about the the accumulating of not just accumulating I'm, of trivial detail or something, which of course, what is Sherlock? <laughs> what does Sherlock Holmes always do? You know, yeah, what, what is, is he, he famous for? Yeah. It's, it's I was looking at Did different you, yeah, things I wish online, I it down and it's the only it. quote that is it's the quote they take out of this movie as a quote on many sites, and oh, okay, so I can't, it is a popular. Yeah, I can't say it word for word, but it's yeah. something about one day I'm gonna my I'm gonna write a monogram. Yeah. About monograph, monograph. Yeah. monograph, excuse me, a monograph about the. It's like the accumulating obnoxious. You know what? The, the, what? I'll just drop the Drew, drop the line in there because it's a classic. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, one that's just a great. But that, yeah, and mm-hmm. yeah. Sort of pettibone, secret, curious sort of fellow. Sort of collective collections, postage stamps, military buttons, butterfly, bugs, snapshots. All sorts of rubbish. Yes, I shall write a monograph someday on the noxious habit of accumulating useless trivia. Yeah, and uh, that shows the strength of... Uh, I'll go ahead and, and give a little praise right here as, I, as our screenwriter, who, uh, first of all, has a yeah. wonderful, wonderful name, Bertram Milhauser, which is a, <laughs> yeah. which is a, which is a wonderful, wonderful name. This is, uh, he, this is his first... Uh, he wrote a, actually wrote a Sherlock Holmes film previous, one from 1932. Yes. And he also wrote, uh, I mean, the guy was, he was a good go-to guy for mysteries because he wrote, uh, I think, a Nick Carter mystery and a Philo Vance one. Yes, exactly. And he'll write some upcoming films, uh, but this was his first of the Rathbone series to write. And um, I think he was, I think he scripted a total of five Sherlock Holmes adventures for the screen. Yeah. yeah. And he's... Um, he was known for sharp dialogue and eccentric characters, which I think both of which are present in this film. Uh-huh. And I think that he did a good job of what we talked about before, this not being taken from any source material and even having to take Sherlock Holmes out of his comfort zone. Yeah. Um, really made him step up his game, you know, and he, I think he, I think he did it very admirably, you know, because mm-hmm. I think he created a good mystery, a lot of nice touches. Uh, a lot of the characters are, it got some weird throwaway kind of funny lines, good lines, good dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, there and um, and uh, yeah, I think it's a, a well constructed, uh, well constructed mystery. I think he did a good job with it. I agree. I think uh, out of the Universal Horrors book, I think this is a good quote. Uh, 
finely edged characterizations and pungent dialogue were Milhauser's strong suits. With the exception of The Pearl of Death, probably his best work, the writer's genre pictures, uh, Sherlock Holmes Faces Death, The Spider Woman, The Woman in Green, and The Invisible Man's Revenge, mm -hmm. occasionally suffer from flaccid pacing, although Sherlock Holmes in Washington doesn't pack a wallop, it does manage to uh, a direct narrative course, builds tension, and doesn't mm -hmm. get too preoccupied with tangential plot lines. Mm -hmm. There's a, there's a lot to praise about the the forward momentum of this script. I think yes. mm -hmm. uh, it is a little bit longer, a couple of minutes longer. It's like an epic length, seventy one yeah. seventy one minutes. That's uh, that's it's, stretching it for yeah, forty. Yeah, like, I thought it was I thought it was a little closer to seventy two minutes, which means it's yeah. just real long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> should have put an intermission in it. Oh thing. my god, how could they keep <laughs> us into chairs that long? It's insane. Uh, well, I I would say that very clearly one of the things they're doing in this film is is they're they're riffing hard on the the Alfred Hitchcock MacGuffin idea. That's the whole. Mm. That's how the entire. That's the entire engine of this story, and that hasn't necessarily been true of mm -hmm. of past Sherlock Holmes stories of, of any type. Certainly not the thirty two script that he's responsible for. No, but it, I mean, don't Usually get me wrong. He's it's a good, it's a good thing to go for. It's mm. a, it's a it, like I say, it's a perfect you know <laughs> adventure. Adventure engine. It keeps you moving, yeah. and you don't have to worry too much about it. But usually, he's looking for a criminal, a person, and yep. this time he's actually looking for a yeah. thing. I mean, he's going mm -hmm. to find a criminal because, well, actually, he has to beat the criminal to yeah. the thing. And the woman so. with the cage of mice, I think, is a touch. That I think that's another. I what think is I, up with the well, mice? I think, that's, I think that's the whole. And they even address that in the film. I think he even directly. I think he literally put it in there just. Yeah, probably popped into his head as something interesting to make you think is going to be more important. And Sherlock Holmes even tells you, because I think home, uh, then Watson at one point asked, like, oh, what happened to the mice and, and, and or something? And, and, and Sherlock says, says that's a very interesting question, Watson, but it has nothing to do with what we're doing. I mean, he literally says that. Yeah. I think he's speaking to the audience. Uh, that really has nothing to do, folks. We're, we're going to barrel gonna on that. because that's pointless to talk about. She's got the mice. Yeah. And the lights go out. Yeah. And then yeah. the mice are gone. Yeah. Why are the mice gone? Yeah. It's like, why do they get out? You, you know, it's made you to think, like, that's important. Somebody, like, set the mice free. Why do they do it? It's and then later they it's say just, yeah. they went to her house yeah. and broke the mouse cage. They, oh, I don't even remember that detail. Yeah. Crap. Well, they, they, yeah, because there's a couple of things that happen off screen. I guess they didn't dare push it past the 71-minute mark because the senator gets robbed at some point. Right. And we hear about that. Yeah. What we hear about is that everybody who was in that room got followed up. Right. By the henchmen, the villains, <laughs> sought them out because they were trying to find the microfilm. And so he gets mugged, the right. senator, we assume, by the same people who yeah. went after mm -hmm. the mouse lady. Right. So... But why? Why? Why did they go after the mice? And, and here, maybe the mice and when, ate yeah. the paper. Yeah, yeah. The funny thing about it is, there was kind of a continuity problem there because she lost the mice on the train when the lights were out. Right. So did she find the mice again? Because they that's say that's all we can assume. <laughs> they that's, say, all, that's the only thing the movie gives us. Yeah. Because they say that when mm -hmm. you know later when they say that. That they hmm. let the mice. They say they lose. If I'm not mistaken, they say they let the mice out and crushed crush the cage, and but the mice were already gone. Yeah, so they crushed. Uh, I guess I guess to see if it was hidden. <laughs> to see if the. Of course, they think they don't oh, know. They, they don't know they're looking for microfilms. Yeah. They think they're looking for. They think they're looking for paper. paper. Right. So they may think that the yeah, that, slide, that, that it's somehow, the, yeah, the line. Right. But but I, the, the thing <laughs> is <strange>. the. <laughs> The, the disappearing and reappearing. Maybe she just bought new mouse. <laughs> Mice. Mises. <Yeah. laughs> 
<laughs> I'm sorry, I got off on a mouse. <laughs> yeah. Well, at, at least I at least I haven't gone off on my tangent, which is holy crap, people smoking on an airplane. Oh, I know. You can't help but just say it. You're just like, wow, times have changed. Times have changed. And also, uh, interestingly enough, some Sherlock Holmes fans may have been a little upset with the fact that in this film, Sherlock Holmes only smokes cigarettes. There's not a pipe inside with him. Not a pipe, yeah. yeah. And that's one of those things that that people were like, yeah, what the hell is is it? Sherlock Holmes smokes a pipe. And it's like an occasional cigarette you get. Yeah. But it's well, like he's at home smoking a smoking a cigarette and everywhere else is like this dude not crack a pipe open? What's going on? So. <laughs> well, he was in a foreign country. Maybe it was just easier for him he to didn't take his cigarette. violin with him. Maybe either. That's true. He didn't have his violin. I, I do like when they were leaving the last scene shot of them leaving their place in London. I do like that you get a shot of the uh, the coat rack with the deerstalker hanging on it there and all those a nice yeah. little. And you get the VR in the background in bullet. Oh, where he's he shot yeah. them into the wall. Oh, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, back to this. Hold on. Once entrusted with the mission to locate the missing document, Holmes and Watson decide to start off, but not before deducing that the document has not been transported in its original form, but rather has been photographed and reduced to microfilm. Holmes explains the logic of such technology to to Watson in a time before that gimmick became commonplace in spy films. In an effort to strengthen the ties that bind between allies, we are given to understand that the cricket-loving Watson is anxious to become acquainted with the American version of the game, i.e. baseball, Holmes does not share his protege's quickly acquired affection for the Brooklyn Dodgers, though. From the air, the camera shows us uh, stock footage of (laughs) Western democracy, the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, and the Capitol. I gotta say the travelogue, the the, the very fake travelogue. Yeah. Of, oh, there's the Washington Monument. Yeah. Once they're in Washington, oh look over there. Oh, look, here's the Capitol. And it's like, yeah, I have to say I did enjoy the fact that Sherlock Holmes is like, yes, yes, how nice. Come on, let's get to the story. <laughs> it really does feel like the, either the actor or the character is like, <laughs> just like yes, 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 tall buildings. How sweet. Mm. Can we get to the shit, please? It's the overhead <laughs> shot of New York. Uh, oh yeah, did, that's that's some dingy footage. Yeah. Did they find the ugliest picture ever made of New York? It's just it was just standard stock footage of uh, uh, taken from a plane flying over New York City. I'm sure it had been used in roughly a hundred thousand movies at that yeah, point. I'm sure. So yeah, also becoming commonplace from here on in. Perhaps a more quotidian reflection of the concord between the allies dealing with the Axis is cooperation among foreigners in police cinema. What with Holmes offering direction to the local police lieutenant, Lieutenant Gro- uh, Grogan, played by uh, Edmund McDonald. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Grace's body is found stashed in the trunk, upon realizing that Grogan is no Lestrade, and mm. Lestrade is not in this film, by the way, mm. he begs his pardon and explains, quote, You see, I'm so accustomed to working quite alone at my lodgings on mm-hmm. Baker Street <laughs> that I sometimes forget the more modern scientific methods so particularly effective here in America. It's like, Holmes, you don't kiss ass well, but when you do, wow, yeah. you're really leaning yeah. into yeah. the crack yeah. there, yeah. This aren't is you? This is serious yank stroking in this, yeah. uh, this film, you know. Oh, there's yeah. a phrase I didn't know la, la. <laughs> Okay, yes. Yeah. Yank stroking. Yeah, yeah. That's our next Rex Havoc. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. the one we're going to be getting letters about, I'm telling you. Okay, but yes, he does like, you know, but it's a little lazy and a little thick. Yeah. yeah. He waxes you know, up again, a little bit. Again, this is, but you know, everybody's later, at war. They need their spirit. Everybody, you know, need But their, later he embarrasses them. 
Well, that's just it. I mean, yeah, the, yeah. the way this is a Sherlock Holmes movie, so he like shows them up like at yeah. least twice as the movie goes on. <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, this minute thing that just that just leads me to exactly right. where I need to go. But, well, yeah. This did ask. Well, they let him into the lab to examine. Right, exactly. He finds, yeah. you know, when they couldn't find any of their They the lab has done all they can do, and then right. he goes into the lab yeah, and, yes. oh, and it's like, here. oh, they're this is bed. This mm-hmm. blanket is wrapped pewter. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh. Really? <laughs> so there was that was a little yeah, some yeah. of that he did that yeah. that little piece in the lab. Some of that was a little like, like so um, pewter polish. Is this what we're, is this what we're going for? <laughs> Don't say that too fast for too many times in a row. So yeah, so yeah. Oh my god! Well, of course, then later in the movie when he finds those bits on the blanket, uh, it, it, it does show up. Anybody really other than Holmes? Because we're in a Sherlock Holmes movie. That's right. We return to the club car through the testimony of George, the black porter, pulling double duty at the bar. In interviewing George, Holmes arrives at the conclusion that the uh, Ersat lawyer uh, had hidden the microfilm in a box of matches now in the possession of a young female passenger for whom he lit a final cigarette. The sequence is quite engaging from the cinematographic... It's beautiful. It may be said to be Hitchcockian. Matches move from hand to hand, from a soldier to a waiter, then to the sundry guests at a reception party, until they inadvertently end up once again with the girl. Yeah, and that is an incredible sequence. That's my favorite sequence in the mm-hmm. film. Uh, uh, Tim Lucas, in his review in this film, and said he said it was worthy of Hitchcock, and I agree. Oh, it is. It's, it's great. fantastic sequence there. Mm-hmm. Just to watch it unfold is great. You're like, oh my. <laughs> Where is this match? <laughs> oh, it's it's it's, fa- it's mm-hmm. fascinating to watch. Yeah, it's clear that the girl Nancy, Nancy Partridge, played by uh, Marjorie Lord, will be the next victim of the conspirators who will kidnap her before Holmes can stop them, and they do so, costumed as caterers, as the engagement party held in honor of Nancy's in, uh, incipient marriage to Lieutenant Peter Merriam, who's played by John Archer. We should point out that uh, these two lovebirds who are who are fianced. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marjorie Lord are played by Marjorie Lord and John Archer, and they were actually married in real life. Yeah, yeah. Are they right. were they, they married at the time, or did they were they, no, they married, were married short? At, oh, they were married. Because I I thought I read something that said they were married shortly after. Uh, my understanding, they were already married, and that's that's why uh, the there's a there's a funny story that the that John Archer tells about having to reshoot that first sequence when they uh, when they meet right when she's getting off the tra- the, the train because. Uh, it, it, he 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 played it the way he would play it with his wife, which is as they were turning to leave. Uh, here you go. He says, uh, "He says, quote, I enjoyed that movie, even though the part was minimal. Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce Bruce were both consummate pros and a pleasure and a, a delight to work with. They were wonderful people to be around and very helpful. They each had a subtle sense of humor, which was always kind of fun." Marjorie and I had a scene together where I say goodbye to her, and I did the usual thing. I patted her on the butt. See you later, you know. (laughs) And the director, Neil, said, cut, cut, cut. Okay, come on, John. What are you doing? (laughs) See, you can do those kind of things in movies today, but not then. Though Sherlock Holmes fans, by God, they are rabid. They want everything to be just the way it was, but Universal was producing pictures to make money, and this is a question of making a buck. I'm sure that that... That was their feeling. Let's update it or change it some way and see if we can make a little bit of money. That's when all the diehards get on them. <laughs> don't, don't pat that woman on the ass, man. It's going to be on camera. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Got to do that again now. Well, just, while I'm here, Marjorie Lord, uh, his wife, uh, who play who plays the, the damsel in distress throughout mm-hmm. this film, uh, she said, uh, quote, I was pleased with the picture. It had a mostly British cast, and every afternoon at four we stopped for tea and cookies. 
Uh, she's an, obviously an American. Mm. <laughs> Tea and mm. cookies. Tea and <laughs> yeah, right. Biscuits. <laughs> I liked that. It was very English, and when I'm around people with an accent, I tend to pick it up. So I thought I spoke with a slight English accent in the film, even though I was supposed to be an American, not English. <laughs> it's... Uh, <laughs> it is an absolute joy to know just that little bit of thing because while watching this through the first time before I realized before I learned about the fact that they were actually a couple in real life I was like man he's really leaning into that kiss I mean that's, <laughs> that looks like a real kiss not a movie kiss they're yeah. kissing yeah well and, and plus they just have a good chemistry together I mean yeah, they really do that's they true. really do and, but um yeah, this uh, I think one of the strengths of this film is and why it's got some why over across the board the performances are so good is man, man you look at that cast and a lot of them had either long long careers ahead of them or were towards the end of very long long careers. Yeah. But I mean, you look at the cast, the credits, you people like a uh, uh, Thurston Hall that plays the Senator Babcock and like yeah. mentioned Edmund Archer Hilarious. there and all Mar- Mar- Marjorie Lord and John Archer. Mm-hmm. I mean, all just these are some really. You know, these are really some some long term players. You know, come in this film. Huh, you know, you, you, usually you look at their their list of credits and it's near a hundred, if not over, yeah. film credits. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it was Hall that played the Senator film. Babcock for such a short role. He was he's, so funny. He is. Good. He's he super memorable. Yeah, yeah. 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 That yeah. big over the top, those <laughs> large and loud <laughs> senator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, he's he's great, and he, mm. he gets. I think he only really gets. Two scenes, but you know, mm-hmm. you you definitely remember mm-hmm. when the film's over. So. Right. Yeah. He bulldogs them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he's great. Uh, Watson, over here, please. Oh. No, not there, not there. That's Senator Babcock. Oh, pardon me, Senator. Sit down, please. Now you're Mrs. Jellison. Oh, excuse me, Mr. Holmes. He ain't Mrs. Jellison. He's the young lady. What? Sir Henry Marchmont was sitting right here, and Mrs. Jellison was right here. She's a sort of a big. Fat lady. What did Grayson do that attracted your attention so particularly to Mrs. Jellison? The little man, he retrieved her book. And the young lady sitting here, didn't she converse with the little man? No, sir. That young lady didn't have no converse with no one. When the little man lit a cigarette, she ran back and said, thank you very much. But you have matches here for your customers. Oh, yes, she called me and I saw a cigarette and I knew she wanted a match. And Grayson used one of his own matches? Dog it up. Oh, yes, he took a folder from his coat pocket. Did he put the match folder back in his pocket, or did he give it to the young lady? I don't remember. I was fairly busy. Try to remember. Well, if I should try to doomsday, I couldn't rightly say just what happened to that match folder. Oh, yes. I remember just one important thing. What? When a little man lit her cigarette, he said something very peculiar. What was it? He said, permit me. Oh. <clears throat> well, upon falling into the hands of the kidnappers, Nancy ends up in front of the arch-villain who will lead this organization, an antiquarian named Richard Stanley. In reality, Stanley is the pseudonym of Heinrich Hinkle, a German who had earlier infiltrated United States society. This is, of course, George Zuko. Uh, he plays evil so well. He, he, he truly does. <laughs> A bit later, by simply making the rounds of all of Washington's antique shops, one of the weaker <laughs> bits of the internal logic of the case. And I yeah, do have to admit, a little, yes. yeah, yeah. it's like really we're just gonna you just Walk tear, you're just gonna go through every, every I mean, they, that 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 little montage of their feet mm-hmm. walking up and down sidewalks and just like, you know how long that would take? I mean, I'm not sure how many <laughs> antique stores there were in D.C. at that period. You know, uh-huh. in 1943, uh-huh. I really I, I don't know, mm-hmm. but damn, really. 
And, uh, you know, from outside, looking through the window, you're able to ascertain, you know, this one's suspicious. Really? None of the others were suspicious? <laughs> An antique store? I was going to say, well, Holmes calls upon his obnoxious trivia, right, to recognize that they're fakes, <laughs> that there's some fakes in there's the a, window. There's an obvious fake right and that's there. What, so it, this is where a villain is. It just he automatically tips him off. This is our villain. They He's had, I thought they kind of had a really good chance to strengthen that, let's go look at antique stores, hmm. uh, by... The trunk. If there had been, when you know, when the body shows up yeah. in the steamer, if he, in examining, you know, the blanket that mm. had the pewter stains, I don't know. Um, <laughs> the one that had the little piece that came off. Yeah, the one, yeah, the one little piece of wood that he that he says, "Oh, this is from this kind of chair." And it's yeah. like, what? King, yeah. George, King George. Uh, so it was, yeah. so it, some kind it, of teak or yeah, something it was like teak. that. Yeah. Um, but. The trunk was right there if he had maybe found a part of a label inside, if, you know, he'd looked over mm-hmm. it and found, yeah. like, a little bit of lettering or something, mm-hmm. or, you know. Yeah. Then, mm-hmm. then that jump, I think, wouldn't have been near as I, I, I don't know. I mean, it is the... Or if he the, could even the, have the, narrowed it down by, mm-hmm. like... If there being a label in the trunk, and it, you know somebody had tried to scrape it away, but it still had some letters or something no. like that, that would have been maybe a better way no. to not have to look in every antique. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's find some way to narrow it down and make it a little <laughs> bit more believable. Exactly. If it if it had just been the antique stock shop starting with B. Yeah, just something that could narrow. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can see that. Well, of course, by this point in the story. Uh, we've seen uh, Zuko's character questioning our poor damsel in distress, mm. and I love this. This is re- this is a really good sequence. She figures yes, out. Yes, I love that too. Yeah. While she's being questioned, as he goes through everything yeah. in her purse, which includes the match yeah. folder, mm. she figures out from his questioning that it has to be that match folder that she has to have gotten the match folder from yeah. the man who's mm. now dead. Mm. Mm-hmm. And she twigs to it and manages to keep her mouth shut. But she communicates it brilliantly. She's yeah. really good at that. That's a good scene. scene. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Yes. And she stays the hero mm-hmm. and doesn't just say, there it is, let me mm-hmm. out of here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and best of all, she doesn't do anything stupid. Mm-hmm. She's smart enough to know mm-hmm. that she needs to stay totally deadpan. Is to- give no hint of anything mm-hmm. that would give him a, a, the slightest indication that she knows something. Yeah. Because she's just convinced him that mm. she doesn't know a damn thing because she didn't when she convinced him. Yeah. And I, and I like that little bit of interplay there in the script as well. Well, the matches end up at the possession, the possession of Zuko's character. Uh, not knowing that he already has what he wants so much, he ends up using them in his stubborn attempt to keep his pipe lit. And with this simple ruse, director Roy William Neal plays with the viewer in Hitchcock style, creating psychological suspense through the fear that the villain will notice Nancy and Holmes's knowing glances at the matches and end up realizing that the microfilm is in no other place than in his own hands. This is what this is the part of the film where I start to think, man, I shouldn't be so down on this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because mm-hmm. you know, following the match folder in this movie. Mm-hmm. Is really cool. I mean, yeah. They, yeah. they handled yeah. that whole. That, that, that's really well done. That's some mm-hmm. good. That's some good writing, and it's an example, I think, of what could be done at the time. Once you are just able to concoct your own Sherlock Holmes story, where you're mm-hmm. not, mm-hmm. Tr- you know, you're not kind of wedded to having to keep it tied into something 
from the canon, mm-hmm. you can kind of go off on your own. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a good example of that, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, things advance. We won't uh, we won't give too much away, but the film does end with a shootout in the dark. Uh, they're, yeah. in, they're in this antique shop with the cops showing up <clears> and... <throat> You know, bullets flying around. It's staged without uh, without as much tension or excitement as it possibly could be because mm. you know, for, first of all, we know Holmes and Watson ain't gonna die. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so the only the only surprise that I had the first time I watched the film was maybe they killed Grogan because he's like the the, the American character with the most I and mean, he's the good guy American yeah. character. It's yeah. like maybe he gets shot or something mm. like that. But no, no, no nothing yeah. like that. Yeah. We'll leave kind of, kind of some of the details kind of uh, out there for you to uh, to catch up with. But needless to say, it wraps up really effectively and mm. Holmes gets to... Uh, I, I love the double the double bluff, the, the kind of double bluff that he pulls here at the end, which is as Zuko gets away from this gunfight, yeah. Holmes already knows because he's dropped a severe hint in this guy's ear Where he's going. that the guy, that the person who... He gets across the idea that this, that this stuff has been reduced to microfilm. Mm-hmm. Small enough to be under a postage stamp. Yeah. And Zuko's character already knows that the dead agent, the British agent, gave an envelope mm-hmm. to the, to Senator Babcock. So yeah. he thinks, ha ha, now I know <laughs> where it is. So as soon as he gets away, Holmes knows exactly where this asshole's going yeah. and shows up there just before he does. Mm-hmm. This this final scene is where we get where we get the the best dick move of the movie from Holmes, <laughs> which is where he al- he continues to allow Zuko's character even after the cops have got him by the face, yeah, <laughs> to think that Holmes has just now decided I'm just going to burn the microfilm up and yeah. then show him no asshole yeah. you had it in your hand you've had it in your hands for the past like three hours and didn't know it remember what I told you the man who has it doesn't know he has it and see that's 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 really effective like I said yeah. that's another instance in the movie where I'm like why am I so down on this movie? Why do I consider this to be the dud of the series when maybe it just isn't? It's just not what I want from a Holmes film mm-hmm. because exactly. of so many of the creepy ones that come after it. Yeah. So that's a that's a fault in me, not in the film. It's it's a pretty damn strong film. Me too. That's what I thought. I thought, I really gave this short shrift because I didn't think it was a good movie. But Well, of course, I so I came into this a different way than you guys did because again this is my first time viewing it and I don't I didn't recognize any of it as anything I'd ever even seen before I have to say I was not overly excited about watching this film for probably a lot of the reasons that you guys remembered it as being something not to be excited about you know one I just wasn't knowing that it was taking homes out of foggy London you know didn't necessarily appeal to me Mm -hmm. knowing that it was not based on a Sherlock Holmes one of the stories didn't appeal to me and also Mm -hmm. I think I was already looking ahead knowing that what we have before us are the films that we kind of keep saying are going to be the ones that are going to fit more into really the theme of this whole series, right. the ones that have the more elements that, that feel more like horror. So all those things, you know, I, was, I wasn't expecting it to suck, you know, but I also was just kind of thinking, well, this will be one that's probably going to be, you know, kind of run of the mill or, or, or standard. And so uh, I was pleasantly, very pleasantly surprised just how much I enjoyed this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, really thought that in a lot of ways, because like I said before, I think that taking uh, taking all the normal Holmes things out of it did force them to kind of step up the game and come up with a really solid mystery and indulge maybe some other things that they wouldn't have in a normal Holmes story. And so, uh, so I really honestly got to got to tell you, I think I enjoyed it. I've enjoyed all three of the Holmes films we've done so far, but I honestly think I like this one 
the best of the three we've done so far. Oh, okay. I don't, you know, I, I still like the two that were done before the Universal series. You know, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. the first two, I think, best of all that I've seen so far of this, this, these five that we watched. But I think I did, and I, I think this one I enjoyed a little more uh, than than the first two we've seen so far. That's interesting. Think, that really mm-hmm. is. Yeah, I think it was a little bit more fun. You mm-hmm. know, now that you look at it, it was a little bit yeah, more fun yeah. than the other two. I guess wartime. Mm-hmm. I, I got to say, the negatives in it do stand out for me. Watson being the butt of... The bullying, the bullying yeah, of Watson. Yeah, the bullying of Watson is just a bit too much at times. It's a matter of, because it's too frequent. Mm-hmm. If he'd only have... If he'd like mm-hmm. slapped at him a couple or three times, but it's mm-hmm. it's like an, it's like half a dozen times when you're just like, damn, dude. Come on, <laughs> and at the same it. time, it, you know, Watson's like, whatever. <laughs> 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 or, or he doesn't. He's definitely not going to change. Or he, does, or or he doesn't get it. No. I mean, it's or very clear with a couple of the being... insults that he doesn't know he's being insulted. Yeah. Or is he just aggravating Sherlock on? Purpose? Well, there's only one point in the <laughs> yeah. film. Yeah. There's only one point in the movie, and it's a, and it's a good point, and it's one of the comedy beats that I really like. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the moments where you could start to think. Is Watson now officially fucking with Holmes with this? And it's, when, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and it's when he tells the story of the cross-eyed Side carrier bird, pigeon. Yeah. <laughs> the cross-eyed carrier pigeon story is a is a is a point where I'm like, is he fucking with yeah, it? Is he doing this because he just knows it's going to drive Holmes crazy? Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's one of those things yeah. where I'm like, oh, wait yeah. a minute here. This is this is pretty fucking good. I like this. Hold on. <laughs> Also, got to give the movie got to give the movie points. It's not a comedy, but we do have somebody rolled up in a carpet and kidnapped. In <laughs> yes, we do. We so do. <laughs> you know, hey, ball, balls for treating that seriously. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's 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 if it was a, all they need to do is with the camera and speed up the camera in fast motion to make it. <laughs> exactly. it been, and have yeah. a have a boom ladder go. <laughs> <laughs> And a bunch of cops chasing it down the street. Yeah. Uh, I would like to say another bit of uh, another joke that is incredibly subtle, and you have to really mm-hmm. pay attention to get. There is a sex joke in the movie, oh. and it's and it, you have to really pay attention. Or have a dirty mind. <laughs> yeah, or maybe. a uh, dirty mind you're, no, you have to have. Once you pay attention, once uh, once somebody goes, listen to what's being said. Uh-huh. And it's when the it's when the, uh, the 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 couple meet at the train. Uh-huh. And they, he says he and he says he's got a three he's got a three day leave mm-hmm. and she's like oh that's that's so short and he's like yeah that means I have to be back on be, you know and we're getting married on Sunday mm-hmm. and da 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 and he says we're going but you know yeah we're going to be incredibly busy until mm-hmm. the wedding <laughs> and they both have this look on their face uh-huh. and it, nice. the way that the way the shot the shot is framed. Mm-hmm. The little lady with the mice has just gotten off the pl- the the train is standing there on the platform right between them at the background, mm-hmm. and she just overhears this and she looks at them and is like, "It's it's very obvious uh-huh. what that she's just overheard that." And it's it, if you're paying attention, it's yeah. like, "Yeah, what would two people who are about to get married be doing <laughs> for two straight days before they get married?" Let me think real hard because yeah. they're the the, the 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 male and the female in this are looking at each other like, "Yeah, uh-huh. we're yeah. gonna be." Fuck it. <laughs> now, just, this is the 40s, though. They didn't have premarital sex in the 40s. Exactly. She said that. That's what I told you. She said that, I'm like, yes, they did. <laughs> yes, well, they, they did. They had, they had lots of it. They just didn't talk about it in the film. You are just nasty, mine. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, they're, they're fucking sorry. <laughs> uh, okay, so I'm going to throw out something here, because this is the point that I thought you were going to make. Way, way, way back at the beginning Ooh. of the podcast, when uh, he mentioned it being a World War II film. Yes, it is, obviously, but 
it struck me really interesting that they never say Germans anywhere in the film. That's... It's the enemy. It's always the enemy. The only time they make a German reference directly, they say Kaiser, which isn't even a World War II reference. That's a World, World War, War One reference. reference. Yeah. And I'm sitting there. I can't. The reason. Well, I Heinrich Hinkle is an incredibly German. Name. But that is a very German right. name. You're right. Yes. So they're making it. They're yeah. making it obvious there without yeah. like double underlining it. But yeah. I think in, in yeah, but the fact that there's not even any you know not even any you know Nazis reference to Hitler reference to even like I said they don't say Germany. The fact that they don't say Nazi is odd. Mm. I like it because really, yeah. if you could, this could be a cold the Cold War. Well, it could have been any time yeah. because they really don't mention yes. which war it is or if there is war. Or if it, well, you're going somewhere which I don't think this, I, I have a hard time buying this, but I'm trying to think of reasons like how this ended up this way. And it's almost as though the person writing it, you know, Milhouse or whatever, like he's almost thinking... I want this, if this is watched in 50 years, I don't want it to be so dated. But nobody exactly. was thinking of these films being watched again oh God, at no, this yeah, time. Exactly. So you can't imagine him having those thoughts. So how, so why wouldn't you just, well, I do why wonder would you just maybe, say the enemy? You know? it, I would think that, that ha- well, that has to be a an edict from on high. That has to be a choice yeah. made by the studio. And you know when I could understand it would be if this was before the Americans got involved with the war, which is not. But which if it is had not, been, yeah. If it had been, because there was still there was a lot of anti-war sentiment and a lot of pro-German sentiment in America before we actually went to war with oh, the there, Germans. Oh, there was a lot of pro-German sentiment, yeah. There so, was. But, but not, you know, I think by this point, Hollywood was not in, in, interested anymore in appeasing the, the, you know, the German sentiment there. So, yeah. again, it's just a strange thing. That's, I just, that's something we should point out. You're right. It yeah. does seem to come, you do think something like this would have to have come from saying, like, hey, let's, let's ixnay the, 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 the direct the mention Irma of the Jay. German <laughs> J. But why? Yeah, why? It, makes no, it doesn't really but make sense. Really, I didn't realize we were going German until we get the Hinkle. I was just thinking, this is any kind of 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 criminal that might get it to sell to the highest bidder. Not necessarily a a. Well, that is a way they could have gone with the story. Right. Instead of him being, a, a, you know, a a, a, a German agent mm. who's clearly working for the other side, mm. he could have been just a war profiteer like Lon mm. Latwell's character in the last movie, the Moriarty, the Moriarty yeah, like character. More, yeah. He was just he, he didn't yeah. give a shit. He was going to be selling to the highest bidder, right? Yeah. But maybe that's why they went with let's call him high, let's let's make him a German, mm. let's code him as a German because having two identical villains back to back is probably mm. a bad look. Yeah. I don't know. No, but. Nobody actually had a German accent, did they? There was nobody, no. well, not no. even the bad guy. <clears throat> well, the bad guys were Americans hired by. Yeah, them. they were. They were okay. specifically there to be able to pass as either British or American, right? You know, so they had, right. yeah. Because Henry, Henry Danielle could, he can float back and forth, mm-hmm. but and the other two guys are obviously Americans, mm-hmm. and so. But Zuko was a German, but he was just transplanted so far ago. Mm-hmm. I yeah, guess t- like he, twenty plus years ago. Yeah, that yeah. he had lost his accent, which was. The plan, or... and also clever enough to realize that at that particular time in America, having a German accent anyway would have people look more askance at well, you. Well, once so... you get to the forties, yes, but uh, the more the more I learn about uh, American history pre World War Two, <sighs> yeah, the the isolationists mm-hmm. were uh, mm-hmm. pretty pretty much not not just isolationists, but hey, you know, the Germans have got some good things to say there. <laughs> yeah, whether well, it's all the anti-Semitism that was an yeah, awful Yeah, you know, I kind of feel the and same way. And then it's way. like, suddenly we suddenly went to war and everybody's like, we love the Jewish people, you know. Well, that, that's like, that's that just it. Before, yeah. that's, that's another thing that kind of doesn't get talked a lot about is that even as World War II ground on, 
uh, there was still a large, a large mm. subset of people in this country who had a lot of sympathy for the Germans and weren't yeah. and didn't really think we were in the war on the right side. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's pretty. It's like yeah, obviously we need to be killing the Japs because they <laughs> they attacked us. Yeah, but I don't know about this whole German. There were pe- mm. there were people like that, and you can find out about them there if you mm. read history. You can find it, and it's kind of disturbing. But uh, uh, yeah, ugh. but it wasn't exactly the Japs that almost exterminated all race. Mm. Yeah, but. Honey, there's no proof of that. <laughs> that doesn't mean anything. Oh, yeah, that didn't happen. I <laughs> yeah, forgot. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Well, especially in the 40s when we hadn't cracked open the concentration camps yet. That's, mm. that, that's just hearsay, honey. And, and the earth is flat. <laughs> yeah, the earth, yeah, the earth is flat. And we actually really breathe nitrogen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, at any rate, I got to admit, along with you, along with both of you, that I was a little surprised at my enjoyment of this mm. when I really went into this mm. thinking... I, I think I even said this to you before we watched it for the first time last week. It's the weakest of this is yeah this is this is the hurdle we have to get over to mm-hmm. to, to get to the ones that I really really love rewatching. Exactly. So, I don't consider that to be true anymore. That's yeah. that's a, that is that is the first real surprise of going through these homeless films mm-hmm. uh, for the for the podcaster. So that's nice. Yeah. True. All right. So, uh, what to ten scale? Do you want to do that? Uh, well, I'll give it a seven. Okay. Yeah, a solid seven. One to ten scale? Can we just have a Beth scale? Uh, <laughs> go for it. No, sure. just like What would that be? One, 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 one to no, five actually, deer stalkers or what? <laughs> actually, I, you know, if you had told me and I hadn't rewatched the film, yeah. I probably would say, oh, well, this is probably a three. <laughs> but now I'm like, yeah, it's, it, so far it's, you know, one of the, ones I enjoyed more. Huh, okay. um, I thought some of the other films had a little bit more Sherlock in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's got um, the atmosphere. This one doesn't have the atmosphere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this one, yeah, this one this is, doesn't really have that. It's got yeah. a lot of neat stuff in it, Yeah, but it does not have the, the atmosphere that especially the first one had. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think I'd give it a solid six. Mm-hmm. That's where cool. I ended up with cool. is, is, a, is a six. And to be honest, my memory of it was that I was going to feel it was more of a five. Uh-huh. So, yeah. there you go, folks. We, cool. we are biased. You and I. How are you and I biased? Well, because you guys are so much more. I mean, you've seen. You can put all these films in oh, context. Oh. Like you've seen them much more recently. Plus, you're. I mean, you've listened to so many of the radio shows. I mean, I just think y'all. Eh, well, okay. I, I, I think y'all probably now. just have seen and read more of the character. You know, I've read all the original stories and seen a lot of the adaptations. Right. But y'all, I think, have probably seen twice or three times as much as I have, as far as you know, all sorts of different Sherlock oh, Holmes right. versions. I think we both came into it with a little bit more negativity than mm-hmm. you did. Oh, I, I, I know. I know. I did. That's, that, was, that was my feeling that up front. That's kind of. A, it's kind of nice to have the. To have the uh, my, my feelings reversed a bit right. by the qualities of the film, so that's nice. Yeah. All right, folks, hang on. We're gonna take a quick break. We come back. We got uh, we've got uh, a few pieces of mail to go through and some questions to answer from that. And so uh, hang loose, and we will talk about that and what Troy and I will be covering next time. spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here are your hosts, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go 
through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Bryce, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Kid Radio. Nancy, darling. I didn't dream you'd be able to meet me. I got leave. Oh, darling, that's wonderful. Just three days. Oh, that's awful. We haven't a second to lose. First thing I did... As I was saying, sir... Let's get this. This finger. Well, I haven't had much experience. (laughs) Look, the day after tomorrow, your aunt's giving us reception. Until then, you and I are going to be a couple of busy people. Oh, I beg your pardon. All right, we got a few pieces of mail in the mailbag here. Uh, I've got them printed off here. I can't remember what order they came in, so I'm just going to jump in like this. This is from Jason from Columbia, South Carolina. All right. He says, uh, just wanted to thank you again for the podcast and wish you a good holiday. This was around Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, I've been able to keep listening to podcasts while working, even after returning to the office. And as usual, the Bloody Pit makes the day much more pleasant. I wish I I was producing them more quickly, my friend. I'm sorry. (laughs) I especially enjoyed a couple of interviews you did, Sam Irvin, and more recently, John Kenneth Muir. Like you, I've been reading uh, JKM's blog for years and love his thorough, open-minded approach to criticism and his deep dives on things like toys and Saturday morning cartoons. Although I'm about the same age as you guys, I was born in 1970, I never really caught any Space 1999 reruns. We mostly got Star Trek and Tom Baker, Doctor Who, so I need to watch that show. And of course, I never got to see Blake 7, but as a nine-year-old kid reading Starlog, I was intrigued. I hope the next time you cover a 70s sci-fi movie on the podcast, you can have Muir on again. Uh, I do have plans to uh, have Mr. Muir on again. Uh, he and I just need to decide. We just really need to talk and decide what subject to talk about because uh, there's a part of me that just wants to do a deep dive on Thunder the Barbarian, and that's a, that's a wrong, wrong, wrong idea. That's, that's, a, that's a very... Oh, boy. I don't know that that would work. Not that I don't love it, but... Okay, back to uh, back to Jason. He says, Sam Irvin, on the other hand, was a total surprise and a fascinating story. I had no idea a fellow South Carolina graduate had published zines, met Hammer Stars, and ended up directing an Elvira movie. Now I have to get a copy of Haunted Hills for my Elvira-loving fiancé. I have no doubt I've seen one of his Hallmark Christmas movies while staying with my folks. My mom, like all moms, always has them on, but my dad and I do manage to get some football in. Small world indeed. Oh, and I loved your discussion of 1941 with Mark Maddox. That movie is so unfairly maligned, and it's good to see it getting reevaluated. If you guys ever want to devote an ever want to devote an entire episode to "It's a Mad, 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 Mad World," sign me up. Oh, I have to be on that too. <laughs> <laughs> he says, uh, "Happy Thanksgiving, Jason." Thank you, Jason. Cool. cool. Okay, next one. <clears throat> what do we got? All right, <clears throat> this is. Hello, Rod and Troy. It's Kurt, the guy from Sumatra, home of the giant rats. <laughs> Rod, in regarding your somewhat downspirited acknowledgement of the low number of downloads the Sherlock Holmes radio dramas generate, I just want to say, keep the faith, brother. Those of us who go all in on whatever less traveled by road you take us down appreciate and enjoy those journeys. 
It's what you guys do. Redeeming the despised, revealing the forgotten. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. That should be our our sub our that's, subheading. That's, under yeah, really. Yeah. Bloody yeah. pit. Bloody pit. Missed surprise. out on missed on missed out on calling it that. That's yeah. a good tagline. Yeah. Yeah. And as a child of the seventies, I too have memories of CBS Radio Mystery Theater. Although in my case, they weren't formed while huddled under a blanket in my bed, but rather while huddled in the back seat of a Ford. Ford LTD during the semi-regular nighttime drives back from visiting my paternal grandparents who lived in the farm country of central Michigan. Cool. The ghostly sweep of the headlights over those desolate empty fields, a gnarled oak tree or a dilapidated barn suddenly looming out of the darkness really enhanced the sense of mystery and menace, I can tell you. And hats I, off. I, I guess that's that would. That's pretty yeah. awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That sounds awesome. And hats off to your Sherlock expert, Beth. Wherever did you find her? What scale of national or international search did you embark on to land on this perfect candidate? <laughs> wow. Thank you. One can picture the two of you poring over realms of applications and CVs, perhaps using the very old-fashioned magnifying glasses that have become indelibly associated with Baker Street's finest, weeding out the posers, the wannabes, the Benedict Cumberbatch groupies. <laughs> the I saw both Guy Ritchie films, including the one where Iron Man dies crowd. <laughs> To arrive at this perfect compliment to your show. Well, whatever the effort, it was worth it. She adds sure-footed expertise to this particular period in your universal or universal journey. Yes, she does. We agree with that. Well, yes, thank you indeed. so much. That was very nice. Yes. He says, <laughs> and regarding your frequent and justifiable eyeball rolling and Nigel Bruce's comic turn, I wonder if the next time the three of you get together, you could shout out your favorite movie TV Watson actor. Me, hands down, Robert Duvall. He really brings out the ex-military man wounded in brave battle. My favorite sequence in the 7% Solution begins when a sporting club bully needles Dr. Freud about his religious cultural heritage and wham, an enraged red-faced Watson is uh, instantly up in his grill, ready to rip his head off out of loyalty to his friend and disgust at his countryman's toxic provincialism. Plus, I like the accent Duvall puts on. He doesn't say Holmes, he says Holmes. Holmes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, well, I have to say, I, I always have a hard time between the two guys who played him in the in the Jeremy Brett, you know, series, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, David Burke and... Uh, Edward Harwick. Edward Harwick. I probably uh, probably would have to go with David Burke if I had to pick one. Uh, it's probably I my lean favorite toward Burke. Watson. I lean toward Burke, too, yeah. Mm. What you, Beth? Favorite Watson? You know, I'd I mean, have to really go back and... Mm. I'd be torn. Um, my two favorite Sherlock's would be Jeremy and Basil. So mm. I would say that it would be one of those, one of those Watsons. One yeah. of those Watsons. Cool. Although I did like, oh, and now I'm going to be temporarily ignorant. Uh, Which film? The new ones with... Uh, with Benedict Cumberbatch? With no, Iron no. Man? The Iron Man. Oh, yeah. you're talking about um, <laughs> Jude Law. Jude Law. Yeah. Jude, Jude yeah. Law's a good Watson. Yeah, yeah, he's good. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, mm-hmm. I, I'm more of a old Sherlock than a new Sherlock, but of course, anything that is Sherlock, I've, yeah. you know, I gotta yeah. go see. Well, Jude, Jude Law was a good choice. I did, I did enjoy him because he, in coming from reading Sherlock, Watson was a doctor, he was a military mm-hmm. man, mm-hmm. he also played cricket he would have been athletic Hmm. and he would have also been he should have had hand-eye coordination uh and he did and he does walk with a limp which you know he's keeping in keeping Hmm. with the wound they they keep they keep the wound and they keep it constant yeah so i thought that law being more physical kind of Hmm. brought he did that more or better than some of the other characters of course 
for some reason, he portrayed him, they portrayed in, in that movie, it seemed like the characters were portrayed as younger, whereas... Oh, yeah. Well, they're, um, they're, 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 yeah. They're, they're late 30s, early 40s, yeah. yeah. Whereas, I, at some points, the Sherlock and the Watson that I'm dealing with are a much older version of themselves. I mean, we I go with them all the way into his retirement. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, you can visualize both of them getting older and less, you know... No, murder, I'm sorry, Murder by Decree. Murder by Decree, right. Now, if we're just talking about Ray. Oh, no. Christopher Plummer plays Sherlock Holmes. It's it's James Mason who plays Dr. Watson. Okay. Mason was a good Watson, too. And that's a good, that's God, a really yeah, good movie. That's a good movie, yeah. It's kind mm-hmm. of... It's kind of I, don't, I don't know that it gets a lot of... I'm glad he mentioned Seven Percent Solution because mm. that is su- that is such a good film, and I, I do wish that it had mm. been a big enough hit yes. for them to do mm. the next novel that um, yeah. that um, I got a blanking on his name, the guy who, who did Wrath of Khan, and uh, oh, um, he, he wrote the novel. Yes, um, was it Meyer? Uh, no, he did the movie. Yeah, 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 he did. He he did did Wrath of Khan. He wrote the novel that Seven Percent Solution was based on. Uh, Nicholas Meyer. Nicholas Meyer wrote so the novel. Nicol- okay. He, he wrote the novel Seven Percent Solution, and then just just like a couple of years later, he published another one that came right after it. And I wish that they'd been able to film the second one as well. From what I understand, Nicholas Meyer has now gone on to write like three or four more Sherlock Holmes novels as well. Cool. Which I have not read. Cool. <laughs> I need to. Yes. I need to find and read. So, so much out there. I always, oh, always, yeah. I always really enjoyed the private life of Sherlock Holmes too. I, That's a very like good film. Movie. Yeah, I like that a lot. But and I don't and I don't trash the the Iron Holmes films. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> no, like I think I, that, I, I think I, I realize what them. they were trying to it's, do. It's a it's a different take. Yes. I, I'm a, I'm a fan of Guy Ritchie's aesthetic to begin with. I like mm-hmm. I, I I dearly love his way of editing films for for maximum forward momentum and I really think that those movies get a lot out of that style mm, yeah, but yeah uh, yeah they, they, they are they are a choice that are off-putting to some people but not to, yeah. not, not to me now as far as like radio Watson I think uh, Nigel's voice is nice so I like I him see. oh on the ra- on the radio there's not voice. a be- there's not a better Watson on the radio shows than I think Nigel Bruce yeah true. I can imagine his voice would would go would go well well he's just radio. great and the way they structured the radio show with him being the focus oh yeah it was it was a smart move because mm-hmm. it's, it's first of all it fits perfectly in with the stories because Watson is the guy who wrote the stories. Yeah, and, you know, in the fictional world, he's the one who's relating these stories. So having him as kind of the host figure who also who's also a participant works. It works extremely well. Okay. Sorry, we took you down the garden path. <laughs> yeah, no, Sorry hey, about listen, that, Kurt. Sorry, okay. Kurt. Kurt's, Kurt's uh, uh, final paragraph here. Kurt says, in closing, not for nothing, I want to let you know that. Due in no small part to your 40s Universal Sojourn, I took the plunge and ordered the massive 30-film Universal Monsters Blu-ray set. It hasn't arrived yet. See previous email read the pitfalls and frustrations of the Indonesian postal system. (laughs) But I look forward to many monsoon afternoons being transported back to the Romanian castles, Swiss labs, Amazonian rivers, and foggy London streets of my first early steps towards lifelong monster kidism. And in Universal Land, all those four things you just mentioned are right next door to each other. So, yeah. <laughs> Somehow all in Europe. Huh? Yeah. He finishes up, says, keep on potting. Yeah. Well, we thank you so much, Kurt. Thank, thank you very it. much, very Kurt. Nice. Thank yes. you very much. Kind words indeed. Mm-hmm. Third and last from Lee. says, hello, guys. To answer Troy's question about Godzilla films being shown on UK television, mm-hmm. the answer is Yes. But not often, and usually the same ones. <laughs> I remember Saturday morning movies in the 1970s on ITV. We only had three channels, showing most of the Showa-era films from Godzilla vs. Mothra to Terror of Mechagodzilla. Hmm. 
unless someone can correct me, I don't I don't remember the original two black and white films being shown until relatively recently. The same films were shown in the early 90s in a late night slot on Channel 4 called Creature Features. We had four channels by then, <laughs> which was shown on Friday nights after now cult classic show Vic Reeves' Big Night Out. I have no idea what Vic Reeves' mm. Big Night Out is. No, me either. British listeners, yeah. tell me what the hell that is. Mm. Or Google. There is a Google machine. Yeah. I should do that. Mm. Anyway, uh, this was reflected by home video releases in, releases in the late 80s, which again were a few from the Showa era. Region 2 DVD was pretty much neglected until it came to the big when it came to the big G, and thank Godzilla, multi-region mm. players came out about the same time mm-hmm. as importing DVDs became possible. I think it's like a snake eating its own tail. Few films are shown sporadically, which doesn't build a UK fan base, which means there's low demand, which means few films are shown sporadically. Yeah. One of my earliest memories is from nineteen from about 1974, watching Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster on a Saturday morning and flicking through a magazine actually featuring that film, plus a feature on the new Hammer film, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. I think it was an issue of Famous Monsters, but I'm not sure. But what I am sure of is that looking at these at those pictures of Godzilla, Mothra, and a hairy Dave Prouse menacing a four-year-old me with a broken bottle, my path in life was pretty much decided. I hid in a wardrobe and never came out. <laughs> Thank you, Lee. Thank you very much. That's cool. That's, That's cool. cool. Yeah, with me, they... they it was it, our different experience, or you know, when I grew up was you know, with me still, they didn't show a whole lot of the Godzilla movies when I was real little, but they showed the ones they did show, they showed a lot. You know, there was like only three or four of the Godzilla series that they showed, but they would show them same way with whatever Universal and Hammer films that we got. It was only a small segment of those series that yeah. I got to see in like the first 10 years of my life, but. You know, every few months on the afternoon movie, they would do a monster week, you know, and they would either show, <laughs> you know, they could, there was only two or three of the Gamma films that, that I got to see when I was real, real little. But again, they would cycle quite a bit. And I think that's why America, you know, even even kids like me who didn't get to see so many of the films until the UHF channels came in and, and that's like Channel 17, it was here, the UHF stations came in in the 70s. And filled in all those gaps, showed the rest of the Hammer films, the rest of the Godzilla movies, the rest of the Universal films that I'd read about all my life and wasn't able to see. But I saw there was just enough of those that kept making the rotation, and that's what built the fandom up more there. Okay, now, which one was in Tokyo? God. Where he he he's a crushed in Tokyo. Oh, that's about to say you're gonna be every single one of them. Okay, because every actually is it is this a cross-eyed carrier pigeon joke? Yes, it is. No, actually, that's how I won a Pictionary one day. Was it was like we had to get somebody to say Tokyo, and I Hmm. draw drew a big Godzilla foot. Yeah. squishing the city <laughs> yeah. and they immediately yeah yeah they just yeah yeah yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah, but yeah anyway, exactly. what I was going to say <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> was I remember a one or two cameras mm-hmm. Mothra for yeah. some reason, mm-hmm. Mothra kind of stands out. Whether well, whether no. whether it's Mothra or Mothra, Godzilla yeah. versus Mothra, yeah, you're yeah. always going to remember mm-hmm. those. Images. Yeah, they didn't yeah. show the original Mothra that where Mothra is just the the only monster in the film, and, right. and you know they, they didn't show that one when I was real little. But they always showed you know Godzilla versus Mothra, Mothra. was the one that they showed a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, yeah, so that yeah. may be the one you're thinking of too. Yeah, but. and so it, those are the ones that, for some reason, <sighs> my strongest memory is there was one film with, with just Godzilla in it. And then there were a couple of films with Gamera, and I don't know, was Gamera in with 
Godzilla? Mm-hmm. No, God, no. No, Game Rose just all bunched that's, of... I, I, that's what I died for when I was a kid. <laughs> I was like, I was like where is the Godzilla? Like, and I, didn't, I didn't understand, like, warrants or different, the whole thing about... Different studios. I just, yeah. To me, it was like, there's got to be a Godzilla versus Gamera. These are all Japanese people. And they <laughs> get yes. together and have these two what things the fight each other. But yes, yeah, so, so it wasn't two years later I figured out, oh, they're two different studios. That's why exactly. I now. I just like, they've got to be together in a movie. But no, they were not. They never, never had together. <laughs> only in some uh, pretty good fan, fan art. Fiction, only yeah. Fan fiction. Oh, I've not read any fan fiction. That would be terrifying. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Fan art. Yeah, you go to any Godzilla fan, convention fan and is, yeah, just, yeah. that's something. Yeah, because that's, yeah, the purpose of fan art. You get to paint all the things you never got to, got <laughs> to see wanted that you to always happen. wanted yeah, to see. So, But I'll tell you the two, the things that you know the, the the times when I've done uh, you know the the museum here the, that we have here in Nashville or in Nashville would uh, you know for a few years I would do the collector's day there they would have people bring their collections on oh, yeah, yeah. so I would bring for a few years in a row I brought my Godzilla collection a lot of it and display it I had a great time with both the adults coming up who you know oh my god I used to watch these when I was a kid and then their kids you know coming up and and and, and getting into it but so many of the people that you you realize the two things they remember the most, you know, from Godzilla movies, it is either Godzilla or the two little Japanese girls. Well, yes, saying, you exactly. know, everybody remembers that. He's like, oh, oh yeah. yeah, Godzilla movies. I always had those two little girls singing in it, you know, even though that was just one or two of the films, exactly. but that's what they always remember. It's, it's two two movies out of 20. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I would like to know why I remember Ultraman so well. Well, I don't know. Was it shown in your? I mean, it must have I know shown. I'm jealous because you're one of those people. Say, I talk to people all the time who got yeah. You and I did. Yeah, I never saw Ultraman until I was an adult. Can you imagine? Yeah. I mean, me being into John Monsters, man, I well, I would have been to have gotten to see a 30 minute Ultraman episode every day. I would have been in heaven, you know. But I mm-hmm. I didn't get to see any Japanese television until again, you know, till the UHF channel came in and it started showing Japanese animation. It started showing you know, Speed Racers, Space Cruiser Yamato, mm-hmm. or Star Blazers as it was. Yeah, called Star it. Blazers I would catch when I would yeah. go to I would go to see my aunt in Huntsville. Mm-hmm. And there was a one of the Huntsville stations showed Star Blazers and mm-hmm. some and some of the some of the uh, some of the people there were actually fanatics over it. Mm-hmm. And it's like I would catch a single episode of Star Blazers and go Okay, it's it's interesting, but I don't understand what the hell is going on because I'm seeing one <laughs> yeah. episode because right. I'm there for like a weekend. Yeah, you know? yeah, but they yeah exactly. But but uh, so I never I never saw they never showed any live action Jap- of the mm-hmm. Japanese live action science fiction series here. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it kills me. Like people who got to see yeah, I've talked running to people like you're like yeah I got to see Ultraman growing up. You know they just it's on TV every day. Damn you. Yeah. <laughs> the there were enough episodes that it was probably one of those things that was stripped. You know Monday through Monday through Friday at yeah. a specific time. But I don't know. Yeah. Well, it was like fifty. I think yeah. The, first Ultraman series was like 50 something episodes and, yeah, and yeah. I think it was maybe the first it might have been Ultra 7 may have been it seems like maybe the first two were actually dubbed into English and shown here I know Ultraman was I almost feel like maybe Ultra 7 was too but I'm not sure about that uh, yeah but if you if they had if they had uh, 50 if they could oh. string together 50 plus or 100 episodes mm-hmm. if it was like two of the series that they just mm-hmm. linked together in syndication Mm-hmm. Then yeah, they they would just strip them, and you'd run, you yeah. know, you'd run them you know, like twice a year. You just run yeah. them in a constant loop, one right. right after the other, Monday right. through Friday, and yeah. Uh that that is that is how you make an entire generation know exactly what the fuck Ultraman is. Uh-huh. You show it every day uh-huh. exactly. after school, and yeah. damn, I tell you right now, people are gonna know what it is. <laughs> that is why I cannot get the incidental music for Gilligan's Island out of my head ever. Yeah, this is, are you yeah. sure that's it? Oh, that's, <laughs> oh man. Do, do not allow, do not allow my lack of musical talent to to, 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 to destroy your belief in the fact that I remember. I remember almost 
any bit of dialogue from every episode of Gilligan's Island? And am I embarrassed, Mike? Well, well, okay, yeah, kind of. But I'd be more embarrassed if you knew all of the the uh, Western. Oh God, yeah, that my discovery thing. that there was a Sherwood Schwartz made a, a Western version of Gilligan's oh, Island yeah, called Dusty's yeah, Trail. Right. Dusty's Trail, man, lasted lasted all, oh, all of about a season, and I've, I've seen I've seen the first ten minutes of the first episode, uh-huh. and it's like, I bet they're oh, dire, this is yeah. this is this is yeah, it's I dire really, is the correct four letter word. There's I, another four letter word. I, <laughs> I I really wish you had not discovered that because <laughs> I have a horrible feeling. About yeah, d- d- then the guess he probably he probably keeps watching it, hoping uh, hoping there'll be one good episode that he'll. No, no, I haven't made it through the first episode yet. Check in with me in a month to see if I've managed to get through a twenty-five minute episode of television, people. All right, well, uh, folks, now I think we're time. just talking now. I think yeah, I think I think now. we're probably going to let people go, go on with their lives. The path has been crossed. Uh, once again, Beth, thank you very much for joining us to discuss Sherlock Holmes. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, everyone, uh, keep your ears tuned because we will have a, a follow-up episode to this where we will have a couple of Sherlock Holmes uh, radio episodes that uh, Beth will choose and we will string together into a kind of a supplemental episode here. And uh, I will soon be doing another episode with uh, Adrian Smith where we'll talk about another Antonio Margheriti film. One that, uh, man, not easy to find. So I don't think me telling you is going to help you at all. Nevertheless... <laughs> We'll talk about that soon, but the next time that Troy and I sit down to discuss one of the Universal horror films, mm-hmm. uh, dun, dun, guess dun, what? Guess what it right is, now. Troy. This is what this is where you get <laughs> to find dun, 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 dun. out. Yeah. What 1943 has in store for <laughs> us next? Released June fourth, 1943, a solid 60 minutes of thrills and excitement, known as Captive Wild Woman. Oh, okay. Oh, oh okay. Nice, John nice. Carradine, baby. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Strap in for Ray Crash Corrid- Corrigan yeah. in a gorilla suit. <laughs> Hell yeah, buddy. All right. Oh, my God. Hey, nice. Evelyn, it's got Evelyn Anchors. Hey, man. Can't go wrong got, with that. Got pluses there. So, next time Troy and I talk, we're going to be discussing Captain, Captain Wild, Wild Woman. Wild Woman. All right. Uh, I'm going to keep my opinion to myself because. Uh, you know, I've never really thought critically about this film, even though I've probably watched it five times in my life. <laughs> the, the critical bone gets extracted before the the, the, the play button is pushed. <laughs> so that's what we'll be doing next time. And i uh, just like to, once again, thank both of you for doing this. Troy? Yes. We keep, we keep rattling on. We're in 43, We're man. We're in 43, man. We're in 43. Right. <laughs> take, oh, take a bow. <laughs> we made it this far. Everyone... Thank you very much for listening. Uh, uh, there have been a couple of kind donations to help uh, help us pay for the uh, hosting of the show. I'd like to thank them. I've I, I've thanked a couple of them uh, personally, and I, I think there's at least one that I haven't thanked properly. I need to do that. But uh, if you wish to, can, to donate to us, just go to the Bloody Pit pay, uh, blog page. There's a donate button there on the side. I completely continue to forget to regularly mention this thing. And then, strangely enough, sometimes people find it on their own. <laughs> and some people seem to, at least once a year, just tap it send me some money for sheer joy. <laughs> Thank you once again, Mike. <laughs> we will, uh, we'll talk to you again soon. I am Rod Barnett. I am Beth Morris. I'm Troy Gwynn. Have fun and watch something at least... Entertaining? I guess that's the best we can say. <laughs> Maybe we need to do another Godzilla film soon. We should do another Godzilla film. All right, folks. Talk to you again soon.
Look at me there. 